Hi, welcome to the Six of Cups, Episode 3. This is a conversation with Bishop Tao Allen Greenfield, hosted by my friend Jake and I. And I just want to express how grateful I am for this opportunity. And I think we did a great job, all three of us. Um, I don't really have too much of a lead-in. Um, if you're listening to this, you probably know who Alan Greenfield is, and he is super freaking cool. Um, and I, I just, you know, think that we um, cover a lot of good material in this one. So without further ado, I want to say thank you to my good friend and fellow fan of twos and twos uh jake thank you for uh being with me on this one um i think uh, the three of us really uh for the third episode nailed it so threes all around for some kind of a uh, three twos there's three of us two, anyways there's some kind of way to make there's a lot of love so there you go <laughs> three two cards makes a six of cups there you go tarot math people <laughs> and this is also the part of the episode where those who wish to attain a producer level credit executive producer or associate e executive producer this is the point in the show where those who have donated over two hundred dollars and uh, two hundred and above will get their messages read their names and locations and any kind of cool notes that they want to share so thank you so much for uh doing that and tuning in and I hope that this brings some kind of good forward progress to our lives. I think it's a major, uh, major, major important ingredient. And with that, if you've stayed with me this far, I want you to enjoy the upcoming episode of the Six of Cups with Bishop Tal Allen Greenfield and Jake and Nate. All right. Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome to the Six of Cups, episode three. Tonight we have a very special guest with us, and that is Tao Allen Greenfield. Uh, Allen's a free illuminist and a former member of certain orders of antiquity. He has spent his life both researching and practicing the occult aspects of life or the paranormal, which Allen and Jake and I agree are similar manifestations of a single origin, from UFOs to cryptids, interdimensional entities, and more. Alan is known for the secret cipher of the Euphonauts, the secret rituals of the Men in Black, the roots of modern magic, glimpses of the authentic tradition, 1700 through 2000, an anthology, the complete rite of Memphis, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, and most recently, God Never Does the Same Thing Twice, Messiahs and Miracle Workers. Alan's books can be found on Amazon, and his blog is Alan Greenfield at WordPress. So, Alan, welcome to the Six of Cups. Uh, hi. Uh, that's not my, well, that's a site that I have, but I've been on the Internet since before it was the Internet, so the best way to contact me is either go to my Facebook page, which is under Alan Greenfield Author. That was Zuckerberg, not me, that stuck the author in. That's a little pretentious. And the um, um, don't go to the Wikipedia article because I don't know who writes those things. 
<laughs> I don't know me from that article. So uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, I do have a web page, but it's with Earthlink, and they're migrating it right now. So the best place thing to do is to go to the Facebook page. I update that every day, 365 days a year, unless I'm out of the country or something. Oh, that's good to know. And um, we'll definitely put whatever links that you want us to put in that are applicable. It's uh, it's it's whatever you want, really. The book links would be wonderful since uh, the two that are most current is the combined edition. A publisher came to me, uh, uh, Paranoia Press, and said, uh, how about we get out a combined edition of Secret Cipher, the Euphonauts, and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black? And since they were written at the same time, and there's a long story about why it was 10 years apart that they got published, uh, had nothing to do with its value, it had to do with that order of antiquity that we know so well. Um, basically, the leader of said order telling me, don't publish UFO books, that stuff isn't respectable. Here's the head of an occult society saying, UFOs are not respectable. But he was a boss, so I put it off until I had my parting of the ways with uh, uh, those people, those sinister people censoring my books. Shame, shame, Bill. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Are there lots of bills out <laughs> Well, we can definitely um, treat them like the sinister Harry Potter uh, and just kind of uh, do the they who shall not be named. We can just uh, play it like that for now. Call them the the old temple orders. Ink. Yeah, I've, I've been ink. <laughs> yes, because they really well times. <laughs> oh, that's funny. They're going to tell you not to publish UFO books because you'll sully the name of sex magic and, and goetic avocation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are between Atlanta and where he was living at the time, the supreme uh, and most uh, uh, colorful personage uh, of the current uh, crop of insipid uh, idiots. Uh, <laughs> but so he's, he's telling me all the reasons why it doesn't advance my credibility as a author and a uh, respected member of the order and the historian of the movement, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and all the while, uh, a tape is playing, this will kind of date it, um, of, of him jamming with Psychic TV. And I don't know if you know the band, but uh, yep. probably you, you cool people. But uh, <laughs> No, I know them. Yeah. I'm thinking... <laughs> this picture I he's talking to me about respectability and why I shouldn't publish a book and he's aiming with psychic TV a somewhat less than mainstream uh, act so but I said nothing because it was his car and we were right over the gorge and who knows you know so <laughs> I said okay no problem and I thought you. <laughs> Self-censorship, it's the best kind. Uh, I'm, I'm slowly learning that. Uh, so were either of you ever members of 
the ancient order of moose. No, not moose. Moose is a respectable group. The ancient order of Templars, Inc. I, uh, I was, I took them an herbal degree. And... Uh, yes. I, uh, every now and then somebody says, oh, remember me, Alan? And I say, uh, sure, uh, you're, uh, because I, I think I initiated 180 some odd people into the Minerva Street, <laughs> including my first publisher, which is a story in and of itself. And that was, that actually served my interest because I uh, used the occasion to talk to him about my then manuscript of what was an autobiography. And after the initiation, he says to me, uh, name is Ron, was Ron Bonds. He said, you know, you're not famous enough to do an autobiography, but the section in here on the UFOs and the cipher, if you were to turn that into a book, Illuminate Press would publish it. I thought, okay, that's all right. And I did, and he did, and then Illuminate Press, one after another, mysteriously died, and Illuminate, when Bonds died under very mysterious circumstances, uh, uh, they went out of business, but not before I uh, got my first, which is the hardest, my first sale of a, of a book, the original edition of Secret Cipher. But now it's out with a, you know, the two are combined and it is less expensive and um, more current. And uh, so I highly recommend the complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonox. Uh, I'm holding that in my hand right now, actually. I, I have that copy right to hand. Oh, that's that's amazing. <laughs> and he's uh, such a dedicated fan. He uh, bought the complete Secret Cipher, the original Secret Cipher, and Secret Rituals in the Men in Black all at the same time. Mm, I'd give him a kiss, but I'm too far away. <laughs> you know what? We can, we can uh, what do you say? Put that as a rain check then. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, maybe, and maybe not. <laughs> so, ask me anything, and if I don't know the answer, I'll sort of, you know, come up with one. From my years at the Psychic Friends Network, I am, can be spontaneous. <laughs> Jake, do you want to start off? Uh, sure, I actually have a great first question. Is uh, What is free illuminism? Uh, you would ask a half an hour question. Okay. <laughs> got involved in, uh, I've been interested in the occult for probably more years than both of you com combined ages, uh, a lot, many, many years. But I didn't get involved in an organization until oh, uh, early 1980s, the, uh, the local camp of the Templars came to town and my then wife uh, joined it and I wrote to my buddy Israel Regardi and said aren't these people uh, somewhat fascistic and uh, he never replied because he died so he had a good excuse but nevertheless when she joined I uh, started hanging around with them and they said well we need somebody to handle our church stuff so I thought what better than a, a devout Reformed Jew running their church? So I did. And uh, 
And years later, uh, when uh, their former uh, uh, chief of fraud, I mean leader, uh, passed passed from this world into heaven knows where, um, literally or metaphorically, <laughs> uh, guy came on board. Uh, he uh, um, recognized me as a fish hop of. Uh, it's like a car hop, only you get to wear more regalia. Um, of of his uh, little uh, uh, tax exempt uh, uh, notion, as it was explained to me back then, and I said, "Sure, why not?" And uh, the next thing I know, he's recognizing me as a uh, member of his organization. All of this is in writing, you know, and so in perpetuity for the rest of my days or his days or somebody's days. So I said, I really ought to join this organization because clearly I'm already a kind of member. So I joined and uh, and I advanced through the system all the way up until they made me a sheriff, i.e. A, a grand inspector. Um, and since I had a pass on Delta, to go wherever I really wanted to domestically, um, because I had a friend who was security at Delta, and they, it was a standby pass. There was nothing underhanded about it. And this is before 9/11, so there, you know it was like uh, um, not that heavy. You just stood around waiting, and if somebody canceled on a plane, you got on the plane. So I was able to go to these various locals. And to make a long story as short as possible, I began to realize that hierarchical organizations like the old Templars uh, don't advance people in terms of spirituality and illumination at all. In the fine print, they don't actually claim to. They uh, claim to make you a um, uh, a young gentleman, essentially, and I was neither young nor some would say a gentleman. So that was not really my goal in being a part of it. And I don't think it was the goal of most of the people who were involved in it. So I began to criticize it, knowing that they don't really much tolerate uh, criticism. And uh, uh, eventually we came to uh, a divorce and it was it was very sad. It tore me up, as you can well imagine. And I lost my sense of humor. And the irony of it all was really bad. But somewhere during that period, I was able to, you know, when I was in transition, I hooked up with some people that were interested in doing the work that I thought we were doing in that organization, but without the hierarchy or the dogma or the religious trappings or any of the stuff that I considered to be um, uh, counterproductive in terms of uh, spiritual illumination and understanding what these uh, various uh, uh, assertions that are made about magic and the occult and so forth are, um, uh, to deal with them as a scientific illuminist. And from that uh, came the term, I believe I may have been in the term, free illuminist, and uh, it means just what it sounds like. It means uh, people who are in free communion working towards illumination, but not 
not under any particular person's authority or any person's authority, hopefully, and not having any dogma and no fees either. So it really is free Illuminism. Yes, it really is. I mean, every by definition, every local is its own thing. So you might, you know, affiliate with one or start one that would not be to my liking, but that's fine. You know, I mean, there are uh, about a hundred bodies worldwide, uh, ranging from two people to two hundred people, and uh, maybe even larger than that, actually, in some of our Latin American affiliates, and they they all. Uh, subscribe to the to the notion of free Illuminism, how they are in practice. Uh, I'm not the sheriff anymore, and I'm not the boss, and I'm not the uh, leader or anything. So um, I will charter them, and then they do whatever they're going to do. So I can't tell you for sure that they all follow the pure uh, uh, version that I just outlined. They certainly have different approaches to illumination depending on local uh, inclinations and opinions and uh, trial and error and so forth. But I, I can tell you that that is the uh, initial intent and that is sort of written into the charters, which by the way are irrevocable, unlike in any of the, uh, the golden fraud or any of those uh, hierarchical organizations, because nobody is in charge. There may be some local facilitators, and you like that term better than master, but uh, uh, facilitators are just that. They, you know, find a location and uh, uh, decide uh, something about when events are going to take place and where and otherwise, uh, and, you know, the membership can uh, ignore that if they want to. And uh, um, it's been very, very successful for the last, I think it's 12 years now. I think I'm going to be checking it out myself. You, um, you, you, I'm reading your book right now um, about the authentic tradition, and it sounds like what this is trying to do is get more at like an authentic tradition, achieving real gnosis in the way that an individual or a group coming together would feel would be the most expedient way to do that. So I guess I'm wondering, like, when you use the word initiate in um, the roots of modern magic, Maybe you could talk about what you see an initiate as. Like, what is that to you? Well, there are people who profess to to practice magic, and there are people who wonder uh, what that involves. It's like I've, at one point in my uh, career, if you want to call it that, I um, um, during my stint as a lodge master for those people, I did a lot of Enochian work. But I always controlled in as scientific a manner as possible. We um, we did the uh, one a week, the 30 ethers of the Nokia, without going, getting too deep into the weeds. Um, I did the induction, and I'm pretty good at doing that, and I was new then at it, so it was enthusiastic. This was early 1990s. And, uh, and we had a group of people who I deliberately picked were people that didn't know a lot about Enochiana, that hadn't read 50 books on the subject. And, uh, uh, and I had a scryer, which was more or less randomly selected, well, a random volunteer uh, to, to scry in the uh, John D. Uh, uh, Edward Kelly fashion, 
And uh, at the end of it, um, we had two doors. They were locked. The lodge, Tyler, and myself stood in front of the two doors so nobody could enter the room. But we had uh, stuff that would rival 19th century uh, um, uh, transmediumship um, and of the physical sort, which I'm not a believer in, but I, I'm a believer in what I did myself. And we had uh, things appear and people would talk about it afterwards. And the uh, scrying session itself, at the end, as was my custom at that time, I am not a Crowleyanity person, but um, I think the, the Vision and the Voice, written by the late AC person, um, is a gem of a book about Anuki. Uh, uh, and I'd read the comparable ether, but only afterwards, and I, uh, had, uh, you know, you can't check a person's whole life, but we had about, I guess, uh, 15 people in the room, and I would always ask, have you read The Vision and the Voice? Have you read so-and-so, uh, whatever the current books on Enochiana were? And the similarity between what our scryer had to say and what uh, Crowley had said uh, in The Vision and the Voice for that ether corresponded remarkably closely. Now, the fact that I was both a participant and an analyst of, of it with a certain amount of skepticism uh, and that we controlled for uh, uh, as much as is possible for the, uh, uh, for the possibility of somebody committing things to memory or whatever. In other words, we were trying to control for any kind of fraud or, or uh, delusion or whatever, because you get a very weird group of people in that organization, I can tell you. Um, and uh, I believe we controlled for it very well, and we consistently got really, really remarkable results. So what I think that, uh, that uh, real initiation is, is the ability both to be able to do magic and the ability to be able to analyze the magical in terms of, let's say, comparative studies with uh, comparable experiments in paranormal research. I mean, that makes sense. It's like you're an artist if you can art, or a writer if you can write. That's true, but also one can accept criticism and one can accept uh, 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 negative views as well as positive views. I tried during the uh, the book that you're reading now, uh, Roots of Modern Magic, which is, as far as I know, out of print. That's how I'm able to just send the PDF of it to you so you can get some idea of some of the ravings that I've done over the years. But um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, being an, an illuminist looking for the authentic tradition, I look for this strain of people who take the matter seriously, but also who <laughs> And uh, I have always had one foot in a kind of scientific illuminism, a skepticism, and the other foot in uh, just plunging in, because I see books written by non-initiates, uh, on the same subject. And the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light is a good example. There's a great book written by uh, 
a group of earnest uh, theosophical people. That some help for me, but um, it, it contains a lot of very useful information. But you could tell none of these people are initiated. They don't have the internal gotcha of it. It's like writing about being, let's say, a race car driver, but never having gotten into a race car. You can do it, but it will have a certain one removed about it. Whereas my book came out right around the same time, um, I was uh, long since initiated when I wrote that book. I also had the good fortune of having been uh, a member of a lodge that was named after the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, and um, and being a, a native of the same state that they eventually settled their colony in, in Georgia, um, I was able to do some things that the that their investigators didn't do because there are local courtesies in uh, rural Georgia, in North Georgia, that uh, uh, that they that they violated without realizing it, I assume, and that I was uh, you know, completely at home with, and in turn, I got members of the family of the last frontal chief of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light to uh, not only cooperate with me, but give me permission to carry on their work. So there, there is a difference. I, I know it when I see it. You know, somebody who paints by numbers, the finished work probably looks pretty good if you do it, you know, by the numbers, but it isn't great art by definition it's uh and you can tell the difference if you have a trained eye and i think you know you use the example of art and it would apply to just about anything i tried to get these people to apply illuminous principles to magic in other words you do such and such a ritual ritual a therefore um can you show results that are real enough and tangible enough that you can say this was successful. Or conversely, if you do the ritual and nothing happens, can you report that accurately as well in the same sort of way so that um, basically you, um, you are confirming or disconfirming your, your, your results? The response I got from that, from their... Uh, uh, supreme leader in the United States was, well, that's an interesting idea. Now let's go on to important things. And I thought at the time, oh gosh, this is just not, not the way to approach this. So I encourage people to be both uh, open and skeptical, even of their own work. I think that's something that Carl Jung kind of did with the Red Book in a way. Uh, yeah, Carl Jung, uh, I mean, there are imperfections in his work, as there are in all people, but uh, he certainly nailed things like UFOs and apparitions pretty well. And uh, um, I think that uh, he, he made a major contribution. In fact, his uh, somewhat misnamed book uh, on flying saucers is... Uh, it sounds like he's coming out negatively. If you look at the fine print, he's saying, I'm talking about the archetypal significance, but 
I tend to think that the phenomena is real, and here's why. And he doesn't devote a lot of space to that because he was a psychologist. He, was, by the way, was a member of uh, NICAP, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena, uh, at the end of his life, at the same time I had joined it. So for a couple of years, we were both members of NICAP. I didn't have any contact with him, but I have read a lot of his work. Um, just to throw back to what you were saying earlier about the um, Northern Georgia community, um, let me see if I, if I got the name right. And that was also something that you had mentioned was kind of parallel to a few other communities where they had grown like what you could only call like magical fruit and vegetables, right? Um, was that the Davidsons? Yep. In fact, the Klan Society, they, the uh, northwest corner of Georgia, uh, apparently, I mean, this is a little outside of my area of expertise, but apparently it was settled primarily by people of a Scottish background. Uh, and rather late at that, I mean, it's uh, it's a wilder part of the state. So um, um, as late as the 1870s, 1880s, there were a good many people from Scotland uh, that settled there. And the Davidsons are one of the clans from Scotland that settled there. However, the reason that the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light moved from uh, northern Scotland, in fact, very near Loch Ness, interestingly enough, uh, to um, first Wallahalla, South Carolina, and then to what was then White County, Georgia, um, a town called Loudsville, which isn't on the map anymore because they closed the post office. It's part of the Cleveland, Georgia area, I believe, um, a um, medium-sized town. Um, it was because, A, it was a strong presence of subterranean caves and uh, Amerindian legends of the Yomwi Chumdi, the little people coming from the caverns. Um, the, and also um, um, Peter Davidson, who was the frontal chief of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light at that time. Um, um, whatever the term frontal chief means, I've never quite had a clear-cut definition for that. Um, he was uh, an herbalist, and that area um, uh, is uh, at the foot of the uh, uh, Piedmont Mountains, uh, part of the Appalachian chain, the southern end of the Appalachian chain. Um, it has the most wild herbal uh, plants, that is, plants that are usable for uh, herbal medicines uh, of any place in the world. That's not well known. Uh, the the people that they send out, I think to this day, to to wildcraft um, um, in those mountains, I suppose around this time of the year, are called uh, uh, ginseng hunters. But uh, they don't just look for the American version of ginseng, which is not by any means the, the best. Uh, but all of these medicinal plants, and in turn, Peter Davidson was... Uh, sort of the equivalent of a naturopathic doctor at that time, and he would distill these and create essences. He had a background in the distillery business in Scotland, which got him in a little trouble in Georgia because you can't make those type of liquid herbals without uh, 
distilling alcohol, which was known by another name in the Deep South at that time. Uh, I believe the term is moonshining. Uh, it's a cryptic term, something that we know here, associated with mason jars, having nothing to do with Freemasonry. But the Davidsons were all Freemasons, I think you said. Yeah, that's, well, uh, look, I come from a little town in central Georgia, and most, uh, I've never been a regular Freemason because I don't like their, their practices on a uh, racial uh, segregation basis, which I'm militantly opposed to, and segregation by sex. It's all for guys, they say. Um, Co-masonry is otherwise. Um, and uh, the right of masonry, the, the right of Memphis and Mitzrayim uh, has always been uh, open to both men and women and people of all religions uh, and races and et cetera. Anyway, but all, all my cousins of comparable age or a little older than me, they were all uh, members of the Masonic Order. And as uh, uh, the mainstream Masonic Order, and as uh, a friend of mine pointed out in a uh, book that he did a couple of years ago, um, in the pre-television, pre-internet time period, in little towns all across the country, there wasn't a whole lot to do on Saturday night. So there was a lot of incentive to join the uh, Brotherhood of Foresters or the uh, Rotary Club or the, the, the Freemasons. And the Masons had the oldest reputation. So, you know, it was a huge organization, especially in the southern jurisdiction. Still, uh, it's the largest jurisdiction in the, um, in the world. Uh, I think there's still a million members, but I think, I don't know this for absolute fact, but I think if you did a demographic study, you would find that it's an aging membership. Exceptions noted, but an aging membership. I guess um, I was just trying to draw a parallel back to, the, I found it interesting when you had mentioned that it was a tradition that lasted on um, from the Davidson, the Davidson clan back then until modern times. That's something that I think you put in the end of chapter three or four in the the, mo the modern roots book. Um, but I, I was just uh, wondering one last thing before I stop hogging the mic from Jake, because you're a wealth of information and this is really exciting. Um, do you think that the connection to the quality of the ginseng or well, otherwise all of the plants down there, do you think there's a kind of connection to that? Like up here, we call them puck wedgies. But, you know, you could say that interdimensional or fairylandish aspect. Do you think there's something going on that causes the herbs to be so, for lack of a better word, or no better word, magical? Do you think there's a connection there? There might, there might be. What I, what I do think is that certain herbal combinations, and I'm not talking about psychedelics. I'm talking about uh, basically herbs that are minimally processed. Uh, are conducive to seeing through the uh, conventional uh, uh, consensus reality that uh, that is our consensus uh, and that we uh, agree to, and seeing other things. After all, we're not really designed, if that term isn't too loaded, uh, to do very much more than to outrun the saber-toothed tigers, 
to walk upright, to reproduce, and not get killed. Other than that, it's all real optional and in terms of biological time, very, very recent, 15 minutes ago in biological time. Uh, uh, half an hour ago in geological time and in cosmological time, barely uh, a blip of a second. So we're not hardwired to um, to see beyond the uh, the wolf at the door and try to keep the wolf from the door. We're built to survive and to multiply and replenish the earth. That's the way we evolve. And rather recently, as these things go. So there are certain substances that activate uh, the one gland in our body that apparently has some affinity for other realities, because we do exist in a um, mechanics informs us in a sea of other realities, maybe an infinite of other realities. Uh, they seem to be associated with caves. They seem to be associated with uh, uh, medicinal herbs. They seem to be associated with certain meditational practices. And to see beyond uh, into these other nearby realities uh, is uh, 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 something that we need a little assist with. And if we get uh, unless you're dying, apparently people who have near-death experiences and manage to uh, resuscitate um, have very similar experiences to mystical experiences. So I'm not sure if that directly answers your question, but I think that in a sense, fairy circles, uh, even though there is a uh, natural quote-unquote explanation for them, are in fact fairy circles. That is. They have a reputation for having something to do with being able to see into fairy, the uh, Magonia, the other uh, universe, which I think is probably just uh, not necessarily the same universe that we were scrying into in the Enochiana, um, but one of the other possibilities that reality has. Um, there's a great uh, uh, in my opinion, a series running on Netflix called OA, and I highly recommend it. In Amazing of, show. Yes, it is. And the second season, uh, well, not up to the first season, is still remarkably good, given that second seasons are often disappointing, except in Game of Thrones. <laughs> nice. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, Stranger Things, uh, Stranger, Stranger Things proves that rule for the second season. Well, yeah, I mean, Stranger Things has been compared to OA, but uh, I think they they have a distinct flavor to them, so to speak. And uh, and OA does introduce you to the notion of uh, uh, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics without becoming, you know, lost in the weeds of um, of uh, theoretical explanations it's not mathematical it's dramatic. definitely and uh and i am not an employee of netflix i am a customer yeah i think i'm gonna i might probably watch oa next i just finished watching murder which was eh. <laughs> it wasn't bad but it wasn't that great either 
But uh, I think I'll, I'll probably watch OA next. But, well, there's uh, a lot of bad stuff out there, a lot more bad stuff than good stuff. So I really appreciate it when something comes along that actually is interesting and elevating at the same time. Definitely. Um, and yeah, caves definitely have a lot to do. And this attic goes back into initiation because even the initiation process as far back and deep as to antiquity generally employed caves or some type of artificial cave. That's where the idea of the temple comes from as a artificial cave in which to perform the mysteries. So yeah, it was it was standard practice in the ancient world uh, to uh, use caves or caverns or created caves or caverns for uh, for uh, sibyls and uh, oracles and uh, various initiatory systems. In fact, I understand I've never seen one in my travels, which are fairly extensive. I've never seen one, but I understand that uh, in the basement of some uh, old churches in Europe, you will find uh, a uh, Mithraim, I believe they're called. That's a uh, uh, an altar to the uh, uh, Persian god Mithra, which uh, became popular in the Roman Empire, notably in the Roman army, and which I write some about in God Never Does the Same Thing Twice. Um, but uh, it's interesting that their rituals were always subterranean. It's as if the, the, the whole doctrine of uh, uh, becoming uh, unafraid of death, very important in the Roman army where the, the lifespan was more than occasionally cut short to feel, uh, to feel protected as it were. And before Christianity became popular with sort of the same general notion, uh, uh, the worship of Mithra spread so widely in the Roman Empire and particularly in the uh, Roman legions that it has been speculated, although there's no proof of it, that it was actually um, uh, sponsored, so to speak, by the, uh, by the officer corps, the, uh, the, uh, uh, with the object of uh, eliminating uh, a lot of the fear that goes into going into battle. It seems to make sense. doesn't mean that it's true, but I think that's very interesting. Definitely caverns going back, apparently, to, to the earliest people, even to Neanderthals, who we're getting a revisionist history of now. And apparently, they were a lot smarter and a lot more uh, um, developed than we had previously thought, according to recent uh, um, uh, archaeological and uh, I think also in several of the other sciences uh, information um, I think even some DNA research if I'm not mistaken they were very smart so it raises the question well why did they sort of disappear uh, even though some apparently some Neanderthal DNA shows up in European and European derived populations as well um, I don't know, but they did, they were cavemen, but the term
term takes on a new meaning when you look at, for example, cave paintings, which are thought to have a spiritual significance, but that's only speculation. However, the, um, the perspective in the best of those paintings is as good as anything from the Renaissance, uh, which was a long time later, 50,000 years later. So clearly, um, uh, at the very, very dawn of human existence, being in caves was part of the mystical experience. Now, the conclusion that they lived in caves, I think, is much more superficial. They probably didn't. They probably retreated to caves when uh, they were under attack from whatever, or, um, or under difficult climatic tradition, uh, conditions. Um, but there's really no reason to believe that they were actually cave people. It's much more likely that they went into caves in order to induce certain mystical experiences, which we have the only real records we have of it are in certain of their burial practices and in the paintings, the really beautiful paintings that, they, that have been discovered in caves and are still being discovered. And that's going back to just the earliest Homo sapiens and at least the last of the Neanderthals. Which if I could just say, it sounds a lot like um, the same parallel we could draw with the Egyptians and the usage of the pyramids. Yeah, I think that that's a fair a fair statement. And in fact, they uh, um, Egypt is a kind of an odd place for doing subterranean things. Although the, I, I ran something today, they just discovered a uh, the largest salt cavern in the world near the Dead Sea in Israel and it's said to be very otherworldly and it's under, get this, Mount Sodom where allegedly Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. Oh my God. Exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> put on her Twitter cool. page actually because I saw that earlier today. And yeah, that I think uh, did you see it on my site, or did you see it somewhere? I think it was on fun? Twitter. Yeah, well, it, it's a, a remarkable thing, and the, the, the initial pictures that I've seen of it are really uh, overworldly, and uh, perhaps used as well. I mean, it's just beginning to be obvious how extensive that system is. It's perhaps as extensive as the Mammoth Cave system in Kentucky, which is awesome. And also uh, a lot of phenomena occurring around it, which I find absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's, there's a, the, the part that's part of the uh, park that uh, has a sort of safe uh, zone that uh, tourists go to um, and then there's a lot of wild caves, and, and uh, the entire cave system is uh, acknowledged to be nowhere near totally explored. But going back at least to the 1800s, there are reports of beings that live in, in the caves uh, that uh, are civilized and uh, sound a lot like Richard Shaver, although the obscure sources, so the likelihood that 
Shaver was influenced by them is not zero, but pretty close to zero. And I knew Shaver, and uh, he was not an intellectual, to put it mildly. Uh, so uh, it is pretty remarkable that uh, you have John Uri Lloyd in the uh, 1800s writing pretty much the same sort of thing. And of course, the most famous uh, and controversial would be uh, uh, Bulwer-Lytton's, uh, and he was an initiate, uh, Vril, The Power of the Coming Race, which has been misused by uh, fascists and neo-fascists, uh, and is still misused by them. But nevertheless, it is a novel that, uh, that deals with beings under the earth. I think it's more likely that the, the caves are conducive to creating portals to other dimensions. That is uh, my um, current opinion, subject to change. Well, that uh, the famous Terry R. Wrist, who I haven't seen in 10 years, maybe he got lost in the cave or something. Actually, he would be in his, I guess, in his 70s now, so. Who knows? But um, he did a lot of cave exploration. I've done minimum, and I encourage only people who are really, really experienced spelunkers or, or you know, that uh, understand the dangers involved in caving to to do any kind of deep exploration, and also maybe to carry some, how shall I put it, protective equipment with you, because not all of these uh, things that are reported are friendly. That also may be the genesis of some of the reports of uh, human-alien interactions at uh, the, the uh, dull space. It's uh, not new stuff, but it's interesting. And Area 51, which I think is actually Area 51, uh, my best information on that is it's sort of a... Um, an experimental government facility, which they encourage people to think is extraterrestrial. Um, I, I, I discourage the use of the term extraterrestrial, I think. Uh, Keel's term ultra-terrestrial is far more appropriate there. Could I ask a quick question just to, just before? I, I would love it if you continue. I just want to interject with the, um, the question, would the ultra-terrestrial be similar to because um, uh, I think uh, you listened to that song I sent you earlier, which has the guy, and I, I use the song, but it's like the word song, but it's like a song collage, which has that Enochian title, which um, it means the voice of God, Fiep de Awad. Obviously, that individual starts talking about Area 51, but you might have noticed that he used the term, what we're thinking of as aliens, they're uh, interdimensionals. So would you say that ultra-terrestrial in the Keelian sense could that be somehow analogous to interdimensional in this sense? I think it's identical. I think it's just a different wording. Keel's cases, and I knew Keel pretty well. Uh, Keel did more field research than almost anybody that I know. Uh, he had his own take on things. And he was a very un unusual guy, very unusual. And that's the same John Keel as the Mothman prophecies, right? Oh, yeah. In fact, um, he did a talk here in Atlanta uh, for the UFO group that I was then involved in. 
And uh, in November 1967, I think it was, and he took off from here. He had flown in at our expense, or actually at my father's expense, if you want to get really down to it. Um, I talked him into paying for the visit. Um, gave a really great talk, and then he rented a car at his own expense because he said he wanted to go back through West Virginia. And I think that was uh, the origin of, uh, of some of the work that he did in, uh, in the Mothman uh, prophecy. And actually, a lot of the, his early books are one book. He, um, he wrote Operation Trojan Horse, and it was uh, the way he told me, it was something like a thousand pages, and the publisher threw up his hands, their hands. I mean, he was a major publisher. I forget which one. Uh, back in the day when major publishers mattered more than they do now. And uh, uh, they said, we, we can't, we're going to have to cut this down to three or four hundred. It's still a long book, three or four hundred pages, if I remember right. But the subsequent books that came out, uh, I think one is called Strange Creatures from Time and Space, uh, and uh, the, uh, the Eighth Tower, and... Uh, and the Mothman prophecies, I think, were all part of the original manuscript of Op Operation Trojan Horse. And he just divided it up into several volumes. Um, in any case, uh, he documented the cases. And uh, if you've not read the book but seen the movie, unlike a lot of movies that are, quote, based on a real experience, um, it doesn't capture the exact facts. Um, but it certainly ca uh, catches the mood. Parts of West Virginia on the border with Ohio mainly um, seem to drift into uh, another dimensional structure for a period of time. Now, West Virginia has always been a, an Appalachia in general, a hotbed for these type of experiences. It's also riddled with caverns, caves, mines, etc. Um, abandoned mines, notably, since coal isn't what it used to be. Um, and this, the phenomena that were going on during that period were uh, very eerie. And the movie at least carries that part of it 100% uh, accurately. Keel was not Richard Gere by any means, but... Uh, uh, he certainly uh, captured that mood, and the mood was uh, definitely carried over into the movie. Um, didn't make Keel a lot of money. I think he said, well, it helped me to get my teeth fixed. <laughs> that was the extent of it. Um, the best book on the Mothman phenomena is a volume that I had a little bit to do with called The Silver Bridge uh, by Gray Barker. A, um, the late Gray Barker was a pioneer in ufology. He was a folklorist primarily, and he wrote about it as folklore. And Gray has been um, misunderstood by a lot of people. But his book is definitive in terms of what this stuff is really all about. But he speaks about it as uh, what he is, which is more a poet than a writer of prose. I highly recommend the uh, the Silver Bridge by Gray Barker.
I will definitely be getting it. In an easy, I can assure you, um, my late friend Jim Mosley, uh, Barker's best friend for many, many years, um, just did not understand it because it's not a fact-free book. Uh, it's probably a good idea to read Mothman Prophecies and, in tandem with um, with the Silver Bridge because the two together, one is uh, just matter-of-fact reporting. That's what, I mean, in, in the particular style that Keel did starting in the 1950s, he was... He wrote for a lot of the men's magazines of that period, Argosy and Saga and so forth. Um, and that style is, uh, I don't think it even exists anymore, but uh, but it, it, it is an attempt to both be interesting and accurate. Whereas Gray Barker tried to get to the heart of what was going on there. And when I say heart, I mean the heart, not the brain, the heart of it. And um, the two together give you a composite, uh, really good picture of what it's like in a in a place that has drifted over into another reality structure. I think that happens every single day somewhere in the world. Um, but I think that it was a sustained thing for a period of months in West Virginia, probably having something to do with the uh, the Silver Bridge disaster. Because there, uh, there was a similar thing more recently on uh, as our infrastructure crumbles and nobody does anything about it, uh, another uh, bridge, an interstate bridge, um, collapsed, killing a number of people in um, Minnesota. I ninety five. My uncle was right. seven. My uncle was seven cars away from that. He witnessed it happening. Well, hey, that's that's really something. Although. He was a lucky man or a blessed man or both. Yeah. But um, um, the day before, there was a Mothman sighting in St. Paul right across the, uh, you know, the Twin Cities. So, Wasn't that the father and his son? Yep. You got it. Have you been reading me or have we been reading the same source material? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I'm just trying to earn that, ma that makeup kiss. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Myself into something here that clearly oh, when, when we when the three of our forces combine, I think we create that interdimensional interdimensionality. That's an interesting thought. Actually, I think the there are very few excuses for group work. One of them is if you go off the deep end, there's somebody else there to say, "Hey, you've gone off the deep end," because you can delude yourself. The other the other reason is as a, as a support group and as a a syzygy, uh, what would be the right term for it? Um, where the greater number has a an impact that the single practitioner doesn't have. Yeah, synergy. Um, synergy. Uh, that'll do. Like that a magnifying or an amplifying effect in a way? Yeah. I was thinking I think like when you put it two or three matches together and the flames all combine into one bigger flame. Oh yeah, I mean that you know that's basic uh, high school physics. You know that that is true. But I think that people working together, especially if you know they're they're, they're sitting in the same room, 
uh, and they're talking about this stuff, and it goes late into the night, late into the night, and they get some really weird thoughts, and they share them, and they're comfortable with one another. They basically do uh, scry, even if they're not scrying, and bring other things into manifestation. And uh, it's a real phenomena. I've been a co-participant in that many times, and I do encourage it. And uh, the more knowledgeable they are, if they're not sort of bound up with statistics and, uh, and uh, well, what the Masons call book masonry, you know, just what they read as opposed to what they experience. Being is good background, but the experience is trumps everything. Well, is that like an um, armchair philosopher? I'm sitting in an armchair. <laughs> <laughs> with tea. Yes, but I am a stand-up, I'm a retired stand-up philosopher, as I like to tell people. A term I derive from Mel Brooks. I am a stand-up philosopher. Roll, roll, yeah. roll in the hay. Different movie, but still. Uh, yeah, we are on the same channel here. Yeah, I had a, a list of kind of topics that I wanted to touch on. We've, and without minimal involvement from me so far, we've actually touched every single one of them, I believe, at some point. <laughs> it's been right, great talking to you. I'm glad that I've solved <laughs> all your problems. And stay, stay and stay and tip the bartender. Yeah. Um, the, um, uh, that's the synergy I think we're talking about though, but yeah, yeah um, definitely it would be bad just because we just say, hi, hi. And what's the significance? Well, you know, and you know, and I know, <laughs> and now we will have two hours of silence, <laughs> silent meditation. Reminds me of a couple of stories, but uh, we'll leave those for another occasion. But uh, if you can think of anything else, uh, I, I had some interesting results using the cipher uh, with your most interesting uh, Greg Newkirk and his uh, uh, band of uh, explorers that uh, uh, when I use the uh, secret cipher, not so secret if I'm talking about it right now. Um, I was always worried that it was going to change once I published the book, and I even said so at the time um, that secret cipher came out. Ten years later, when secret rituals came out, um, it was still in use. I think they, whoever uses the cipher and knows it, um, um, I think it changes only very slowly. Obviously, there's a long distance between the cipher derived from Liber Alba Legis uh, and the cipher that uh, was used by D. and Kelly, which uh, called Enochian from three centuries earlier. But it was a gradual change. You see it in certain Masonic ciphers, um, which now that I think about it, I, I discuss briefly in. Um, secret cipher or secret rituals. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've read either one. <laughs> I don't like my own stuff. I see all the mistakes that I made. So 
I avoid it. But I, um, I had the impulse to listening to those folks. Um, actually, I uh, realized that I could pull the, the YouTube thing up on my big screen TV. Uh, and so I watched all the Hellier episodes on the big screen, which is a totally different type of experience than watching it on a phone. And um, I thought, well, Hellier is a very interesting name for a town. Kiel was always uh, interested in things that had names like Mount Misery or Mount Pleasant or uh, 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 various negative names that seem to be associated with certain sites. Hellier is not a big uh, leap from entrance to hell. Right. Uh, from that, I, um, it's actually the name of a guy who founded the town, but uh, I, I did look it up. But in the process, I read it through uh, uh, the cipher, and it uh, has a value of 93, which is extremely significant to people who follow anything of the Crowley canon, which is thesis um, um, of the cipher, whatever one thinks of, of the work that it's based on. It's the code book, so to speak, of the secret cipher of the Ufnons. Yeah, because 93 is Agape and Thalema, and that's why they greet each other with 93, 93, 93. Love is a law, a, love under will. Yeah, it's a love and will. Both have the value of three, but so does Hellier. And uh, a bunch of other words as well that seem to add up to something of a sentence. And I would have to go to my other phone to read the sentence to you, but I worked it out just for your program. So you probably uh, would like to hear it, wouldn't you? We have all the time in the world. And yeah. Why don't you talk to each other for a minute while I write this down? Across, It's only across the room, but you probably can't hear me from over there. And I'll sound like I went into the caves. Actually, I'm in the Jewish tower. That's another matter. <laughs> Mazel tov. the way North Atlanta is. I call it the lightning struck tower when the residents aren't around. <laughs> That's the best way to put it. That's uh, from the Gareth Knight tarot. And uh, what else? Jake, what's the what's the tarot that we use? Is that the Hermetic tarot? No, which one? The black and white one. Because not all tar not all tarot decks call it the lightning struck tower. Some just call it the tower. Yeah, most just call it the tower. Yeah, I like it when it's called the lightning struck tower. It adds that extra... Oh, I don't know. Oomph. As yeah. that zap. Although I don't think I've ever seen it depicted where it wasn't lightning striking it. Right. Oh. Yeah, it usually is. Um, you know what? I got a, I got a really unique... I got the Prisma Tarot here. So while we're doing this, I'll look through it and see what we get. Yeah, that's a cool one. You got to get this one. And so, while we were on the subject of caves, hopefully uh, I can hear this. But... Uh, we were talking about initiation in caves, and uh, I got to go in Bulgaria to this really old, it wasn't very dangerous because it, they got it all made for tourists these days, but uh, they had really old cave paintings on the walls, and uh, 
And so Bulgaria was the land of the Thracians in the ancient days, and the Greeks said that that's where they learned the mysteries from. A lot of people think it was the Egyptians, but they didn't meet the Egyptians till later. They say they got it from the Thracians, especially the Bacchic and the uh, Morphic, which were later, and the Eleusinian. And uh, so when I was in this cave, and they had uh, all these crazy cave paintings, and uh, one of the most common themes in, in this cave, and it's there's literally hundreds, if not thousands, of depictions of the like the dancing woman with the the arms, almost a circle shape above her head, very similar to the the Nile River goddess. It's one of the oldest uh, depictions of divinity found in Egypt, and uh, so we're going through this cave, and I'm like, man, that really looks like. So at first, I'm thinking, well, did this come from? Uh, did they learn this from Egypt? Because you could, I, with my trained eye, I could tell. Okay, yeah, this was a. You could tell. I could tell at least that nobody lived in there, ever. Like it wasn't for living. It was, but. They were well used, and it was clearly for initiatory purposes, to, to my eye. And uh, so I'm seeing the what looks like the Nile River goddess, and I was thinking, like, did they? Uh, so maybe they learned this from the Egyptians, or it came from a common source, and maybe the Anatolia or whatever. Till we get to this one in the heart of the cave complex, and there's this giant. I'm not sure if you call it a stalagmite or a stalactite when it goes all the way up and down, but it went all the way up and down. And the particular one, it looked exactly like uh, the Mother Earth being penetrated by the Father Sky. And uh, in this particular where the uh, stalagmite was, roof of the cave there was this kind of a hole a little imperfection that was perfectly in the shape of the the Nile River goddess that's painted all over this cave interesting yeah I was like well wow this actually had to be like where that comes from and could have went towards Egypt then I found other evidence of that since then too so alan one thing about jake and i too which is why we make good co-hosts for this is that uh we're both equinox babies jake is the 22nd of march and i'm the 22nd of september Ooh, that is very interesting so you just had a birthday yes i did <laughs> Happy birthday mr president <laughs> Alan, are you comfortable sharing your birthday with us? Would that be okay? Okay. Let me. T uh, I was abducted by aliens, but I, I I cut myself loose with my sword, and I'm back now. Hello. And I have these things. Hellier equals ninety three in the cipher, the secret cipher. It used to be called Cipher Six, but that was because of uh, the late Tim Coutet's work on a mainframe computer while the bosses were out of the office. We'll pass on that. He's dead, and they don't know about it. <clears throat> but 
the following words. This is the way using the cipher can come up with meaningful results. I, I must say that this particular one is going to be a lot more meaningful to people who are either, quote, limit unquote, or people who are um, fairly literate in the world of Crowleyana. But here we go. First word is Pentateuch, which uh, is Greek for five books and is uh, re reference to the five books of Moses, which in the Hebrew tradition, uh, happens to be my tradition, is uh, the, the holy text, the ultimate holy text, five books of Moses. Second word, Christ. Third word, term, the one anointed. Fourth term, Babylon, spelled in the way that Crowley liked to spell it. Um, fifth, goddess. Next, absolute. Then, Enochian. Then, kingdom. Then, apocalypse. Then, this is the furthest into the Crowley world, Kirillu. And then, phenomena. So I played with this for a while and came up with what is almost a sentence. If we take Pentateuch to mean holy book, we say, holy book, Christ the one anointed Babylon, goddess, absolute, Enochian kingdom apocalypse, Krilliu phenomena. That's incredible. Isn't it, though? That, that tells are, a whole story right there. Yeah, that's every 93 word that I was able to come up with in a short period of time, all of those referential to the Crowley canon, so to speak. Yeah, and if you're, if you're familiar with Thelemic mythology, I guess, or what symbology or whatever it is, that makes sense. Like, but the, yeah, they yeah, don't like that. Totally adds up. <laughs> Alan, are you familiar with um, the cryptozoological expert, Lauren Coleman? From way back, yeah. I haven't had any contact with him for years, but I, I know who he is, and I had contact with him, uh, how shall I put it, back in the day when we were, we were young fellers just sort of gambling around, and he went for, I went for the UFOs in the sky, which they weren't, they were more on the ground, and he went for the weird creatures in the caves. Well, yeah, he has he has a blog where he talks. It's called Twilight Language or uh, the Copycat Effect blog. And uh, he talks about how certain places and names all have these kind of synchromystic resonance. So when you were talking about hell, you're having that, that instantly sprang to mind. I, I think that's why Keel reached that conclusion about things like Point Pleasant and Mount Misery, you know, that or Devil's Mountain, or, you know, that places, the name resonates with what the place is. And one or the other came first, but it really doesn't matter. It's a, it's a tip-off that this is, this is an important place. It doesn't always work. There's nothing special about the name Hopkinsville that I can think of. Um, but uh, 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 there, there is a, a way of using the cipher. It was actually the major point of the, of the first book. I intended for people to use it in this way, but I, I haven't ever heard from anybody who's actually done it. It's a way of predicting future 
UFO cases of the second and the third kind, um, which is if in a current case, I mean, you'll know this, you've read the book, but uh, to your listeners, if you have heard about a case recent, recent enough to be significant, um, of someone having a uh, uh, close encounter experience, close enough that like the um, um, the Indrid Cold case in West Virginia, that get an odd sounding name or an odd sounding place name or uh, any useful word that just doesn't fit, reduce it to the cipher and then uh, uh, compare it to plots on a, on a map in terms of days and locations. And you can often find a prediction in that weird name shows up in the media. Apparently it reaches someone or someones uh, who are agents of otherware uh, in black and hiding, whatever they may be. Yep. Uh, and they're the only ones who are supposed to know this, but we're sort of intercepting it. And it will pretty much tell you where a UFO case is going to occur. I don't mean a light in the sky. They occur all the time, pretty much everywhere. But a remarkable case. I've even had uh, uh, some experience with that happening on the air with live programs. Uh, uh, incident with that uh, with uh, Clyde Lewis, who runs a show in is it Portland or Seattle now. But uh, oh, uh, yeah. whenever I do his show, weird weird stuff happens. That was 2014 December, right? Uh, that was the, the one on his current station. He before that he was at a station in Texas, and while we were on. Uh, UFO showed up above his studio, oh, so man. he uh, went outside to see the UFO. <laughs> so we had some dead air, but it was interesting. And then we had the more recent thing where I think he thinks that I caused this terrible, it must have been Portland, unseasonable storm uh, that uh, killed a couple of people. And oh. I really don't do that. I'm a nice guy, usually. And... Uh, <laughs> But I did do something I rarely do. I did a, um, at that time I was uh, promoting one of Tim Beckley's books, which I had a bit to do with. Um, and Angel Spells was the name of it. Love, Tim. I want some books. Ten <laughs> <laughs> um, dollar. Did you have, did you have, now speaking of Hellier, did you have any strange synchronicities while you were watching that you, that you could talk about? If you mean like something coming through the door, that didn't happen in the Jewish tower. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy standing at the door that you sign in and you sign up. If you mean, were there things like when I turned off the episode and turn, turned on uh, HBO, let's say, that something unusual that was said in the episode by one of the investigators um, was the first thing that was said when I tuned it 
random to one of the stations that I watch. And I watch CNN, HBO, Showtime, Netflix, blah, blah. In other words, the mostly non-commercial stuff. And uh, the likelihood of that happening is very low. It happened for all five, I think it was five, five episodes. In other words, I caught a term. I can't remember what they were. I don't write these things down because synchronicities, it's like if I mention the name Philip K. Dick, I get synchronicities. Yeah, now, it's, well, like, it's like a feedback loop. Yeah, it's it's a, a really weird thing because he wrote a lot of, about synchronicities. But uh, um, he's, uh, as I wrote you, he's, uh, I've read literally everything he ever wrote, uh, fiction and nonfiction. Even, well, probably there are parts of his uh, private journal that have not been published that I haven't seen, but uh, um, that would be all. And uh, uh, whenever he comes up, especially if I'm not looking for it, there is a really interesting synchronicity within uh, within a day or less, sometimes within an hour or less. Uh, so it's uh, it always happens with the Hellier thing. It was always a, a sentence or a sentence fragment, something like, "Are we going in there?" And then I turn on, let's say, Showtime, and the second I turned it on, someone is saying in a totally unrelated context. Are we going in there? And that happened all five times. That's yeah. happened again. us a lot while we were watching it. Uh, we were in a lot of the same chat rooms and, and on Twitter and stuff. And when I, we'd be talking to somebody else about something and while one of us was watching it and uh, like, wow. That was totally a sync, so that's why we started kind of cataloging it a little bit because it was it was happening so much, like a ridiculous amount of times. <laughs> what was what was really unique, Alan, is that I listened to your conversation with Clyde Lewis, and it was completely, as you know, these things go. It was fairly random, and I had no idea that there was any connection to Hellier. But that very next day, I watched Hellier. It was, it was like bookended. It, like I finished your conversation that morning, and without having any clue that there was any relation whatsoever, I then watched Hellier. Like something guided me, or I don't know how you put it, but something happened there. So I wonder what yeah, you think. That, so that's the sort of thing that is, uh, I don't want to call it typical because these are remarkable things and I don't want to trivialize them. No matter how often they happen, they're remarkable. It's always, gosh, wow. Hey, I must be in the zone. You know, it's it's just that sort of thing. But yeah, it's uh, that's the way that it happens. Um, I had a sort of a similar thing the way that I heard about Hellier. I didn't know what... Uh, uh, Greg Newkirk and his uh, companions were doing at, the, at this time, but I, um, it seems to me, I may be garbling this and he'll correct me on this, but a couple of years ago, he sent me an email and he said, hi, I'm Greg Newkirk and you're not. No, that's Joey <laughs> Joe. Ignore me, I'm not on the program. 
all of this will come out blank except your questions. <laughs> oh, jeez. It was the Men in Black, right? Uh, Men in Black, uh, yeah. It was the Men in Black. That doesn't add up to 93, but Men in Black. Um, we'll go back to that. Now yes. I'm totally what I was talking about. Gr- was um, Greg say? Newkirk called you or emailed you. Emailed me and said, um, can you put me in touch with Terry Wrist? And I said, well, first of all, uh, Terry and I mostly interacted way, way back. You can tell that from the from the interviews. I, said, I think the last time I saw him, by the way, he, uh, uh, Richard Shaver sent me some of the, his rock paintings. I mean, he sent the rocks to me in a big bag. And I gave them, well, didn't give them, I loaned them to Terry to, um, I think he was going to, uh, cut them down and try to turn them into slides because we both thought that they might be um, um, holograms, yeah. but you know, embedded in in rock, uh, which I still think might be the case. But um, uh, he disappeared, meaning he went somewhere else uh, shortly after that, and I've never seen the uh, the rocks Shaver sent me since then, and. Um, that's not something I hold against him because I don't know where he is. And he said, um, uh, Greg wanted to know what his real name was. And I said, good luck on that one because I never called at that time. How should I put this on something that's going to appear in in Trump world in the 21st century? <laughs> I spent some time in comparatively radical circles back in the day. and the affinity group that I worked with on issues like nuclear disarmament and other really radical ideas, uh, we always, after a certain point, we always used uh, noms de guerre. Uh, uh, We did not use our real names. I was, I'm not going to say who I was, but, uh, but Terry was, you know, when I met him, he was already going by that name and it was Unlike some of them, it was clearly not his real, not his birth name anyway. I mean, I know a lot of new age people that have names like uh, uh, Rainbow Sunshine, you know, and uh, actually I know a girl named Sunshine, right to the cases, but as I guess her parents were hippies, whatever. But um, I did, you didn't ask if you didn't know, it was just, considered to be a safety precaution because of the men in gray surge suits with the badges. Jay Edgar. Uh, yeah, that was back in back in his time. Back when the FBI was the bad guy, you notice that keeps going back and forth. Like, oh, you, you, you got to trust the FBI. I don't trust the FBI. How could I back then? Because... Hoover was in office by having something on everybody for what, 50 years? I mean. Well, you do notice that FBI anagrams around a fib, so. I never noticed that. I would, I'm the sort of geek that would analyze it uh, with the, with a cipher and never take the plain fib out of it. But there were lots of fibs going on in that organization back in the day. 
Ask John Dillinger. Whoops, you can't. He's dead. Immortalized uh, he in the Illuminatus trilogy. Uh, I knew Wilson. Uh, the Illuminatus trilogy was not the best thing that he ever did, but uh, actually the other guy I knew at one time, back in the same days that I was doing what I just mentioned. Um, what was his name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Wilson's books, I think, while he has uh, an outsider's overly favorable view of that order of alleged antiquity that we were speaking of earlier, they were always uh, sort of, uh, oh gosh, my friend Roger is trying to call me on the other line. Going to take it because I know what he wants. Uh, well, I got on your program, didn't he? He's a, <laughs> he, he comes from a similar organizational affiliation, which he also similarly is no longer affiliated with. Um, anyway, um, where was I before Roger so rudely? You were talking about um, Robert Anton Wilson and his outsider perspective on certain orders of antiquity. Well, a certain order of antiquity. A certain. The old yes. Templar order. The old Templar order. It's like the old ranger. The old ranger died and Ronald Reagan replaced him on Death Valley Days. <laughs> er, how about that? Hmm. So, um... had a really good perspective on uh, treating phenomena in a non-dogmatic fashion. And I think that that was something that any anyone who's interested in it would emulate. But I noticed that people that I really admire and like uh, sing Wilson's praises and uh, people that I dislike and considered to be neo-fascist uh, occultists, of which there are more than I would be happy with, um, also admire him. So <laughs> there must be something in, in his work that uh, pleases uh, many, many people. Great guy. He always called me the UFO guy. No matter what I was doing, I did a um, tool ceremony that is well known in the uh, old Templar outfit ink uh, and I did it rather well I think and I came out of it and Wilson had attended and I was still the UFO guy I mean I don't know what I would have to do <laughs> to qualify as beyond that the next time I saw him was at this uh, conspiracy convention at, uh, somewhere or other and I had given a talk, and it happened my talk coincided with his. So, of course, I had 10 people, and he had 1,000. I mean, it was just, that's fine, you know, that's... Anyway, so we talked for a few minutes afterwards. He said, hey, UFO guy, right? And I was looking at the... Uh, 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 he was wearing a white shirt with ro roach burns on the pocket. Ah, yeah, Wilson is okay. He certainly draws the crowd. Great guy, great guy. I recommend virtually all of his books.
I recommend all the ones that I've read. I can't recommend the ones that I haven't read. Well, it's just, it's just three popes here talking right now, so it's all good, no matter what. Well, uh, if you're talking about the Illuminatus trilogy, yeah. If you're talking about the stuff that he wrote after that, I mean, before that, he was an editor of Playboy, so yeah. he, has, he had a mini, mini uh, splendored career. Uh, died too young, but good yeah. guy. And good work. I um, wish there were more like him now instead of uh, the very derivative people that we, uh, well, I mean, literature in general has somewhat suffered. There are no Philip K. Dicks among us now. Yeah. I agree with that. Uh, before, those two were friends, too, run, weren't they? KD and uh, Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. And they had the whole serious connection there. <laughs> well, actually, if you go to this changing pages a little bit, um, I had this weird experience while I was with the old, old, ancient. Templar people. Um, we went to some event that uh, was one of those uh, new agey, witchy, witchy, neo-pagan events, but we were invited to go and perform that particular ritual that they're so famous for, one in public and the other for those who wish to see the full enchilada. And uh, while we were there, there were some members of a rival uh, Kenneth Grant affiliated uh, group of people and uh, I think actually Grant had a better claim to their uh, ancestry than they do but that's neither here nor there that never was challenged anywhere appropriately um, in any case uh, um, I think that Grant was the first person except maybe for my teacher, Michael Berdio, to link UFOs and the occult in a decisive manner, that they were essentially different aspects of the same phenomena. Of course, the old Templars regard that as ridiculous. Anyway, one of their representatives at that time, who later became uh, the leader of one of the claimants to the golden fraud, I mean golden dawn, I'm sorry, mantle uh was talking to my then wife and uh i only heard this i saw them talking but i only heard this conversation from her a little bit later but she was pretty reliable on that sort of thing anyway, a very reliable person she said you know uh, he says if, if i persist in this order that i will get into this weird stuff about serious and I thought, uh, it's all serious stuff. No, 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 the star, you know, like the Dogon, you know. I said, well, I don't, I was already like, you know, way up in the second triad, so I would, whatever, the middle triad. So I hadn't heard anything about that. To the contrary, it's, they were all into pretty much doing Masonic stuff, and I knew from the, uh, basically, in orders like that, you have a series of degrees that are basically Masonic. 
certain names are changed and words are changed, but it's basically, uh, if you get Duncan's Ritual of Freemasonry, it's not going to be very different from, from what they do, except when they come to key names, they'll be something different and there'll be something about uh, Alistair Crowley thrown in there because he wrote some of the rituals. Uh, oh, or he just said that he wrote them. Um, so I didn't think that there was anything of that sort. To the contrary, it was Masonic workings, except in the the supreme secret of the degree, which uh, almost everybody who knows magic knows it because it's been published over and over and over. And while it was probably fairly secret in Victorian times, it ain't no secret now. It's just one of the standard schools of tantric yoga uh, personified as a degree and not actually practiced in group rituals at all. Um, although informally in certain lodges, one never knows. Anyway, there's nothing about serious in that. But there is in Grant. Grant, and that must be what this guy was referring to, the golden fraud guy, Don, Don guy, uh, was referring to. Um, so I had read only a, a smattering of Grant at that point, but I read Outside the Circles of Time, and then I read everything that the man wrote. And while he was, uh, uh, how shall I put it? He was a 301 on UFO lore. He was a 10 on one, four on one, grad student, uh, postgraduate doctoral student of occult lore, and far, far more uh, in depth and serious and important in occultism than his uh, purported rivals in the purported other Templar order. The other Templar order. That has a ring to it. <laughs> write, that, write that down. We can form it. Establish <laughs> a link and... That's a, that's a good name for it, too, there. The other. <laughs> the other. The OA. Oh, nice. The Omega yeah. Alpha. Yep. Well, beginning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a good and <laughs> for my last little trick in this lifetime, I'm going to make them disappear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am. I am ready. Ah, uh, I'm more than ready, but the opportunity has to knock. Who's there? Uh, yeah, they might make themselves disappear too. So. <laughs> well, if they were going to make me disappear, they would have done it like 15 years ago. And I did get death threats back then and uh, stuff from, uh, I don't know at what level, you know, probably local enthusiasts. But uh, uh, I, to take them seriously, I mean, is just. Uh, used to hear the term, I don't know where it was first applied, but it does apply to them. They couldn't organize a Boy Scout march on a burlesque house. <laughs> and while, 
the notion, I mean, there, there are those books that talk about them, you know, being responsible for assassinations or ruling the world or yeah. whatever. I'm uh, pretty sure they're the authors of those books <laughs> more than anything. Uh, well, that, yeah, I, I set one of those authors right, and he stopped writing that kind of stuff. <laughs> Look, they're not good people, but they're not... Maybe they would be that way if they had some power and some sense of organ organizing and some sense of doing something other than going to court all the time and claiming uh, authority over things that they, yeah, that's, but they're mostly marginalized, relatively intelligent people who, you know, have two years of college and, and uh, work in an office. And I noticed that on their bulletin boards, this is really out of school, but I don't think, you know, I'm talking about the old Templars. I'm not talking about a real organization. This is a fictional group. And in this fictional group, all the, not all, but most of the emails that I got from their uh, grandiose, logish uh, uh, lists all seem to come during business hours on the West Coast. I only noticed that after a couple of years, you know. So I concluded they're really only emailing on their boss's time. <laughs> and while that, you know, I'm sort of anarchic about that sort of thing, I figure, well, that's okay. It's also inconsistent with who they are, and it also shows uh, that they work in a cubicle, most of them. There are exceptions, a few, but mostly they're cubicle people. That's like a little different than cave people, right? Not really. Hey. I, I respect cave people. After all, anybody who could do matchmaking between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens way, way back in Siberia, uh, that's some kind of matchmaking, let me tell you. I have respect for them. Could I uh could I ask a quick question and then we're gonna lead into another quick question? Uh, you can ask me a slow question, quick question. You can consult me, whatever you want. Well, all what I'm right, let's do that. <laughs> I'm wondering if you would be comfortable sharing what your birthday is with us. Would that be something you're cool with? Sure, you can guess. Make a guess now, and I'll tell you whether you're right or wrong. February 30th. There isn't any February 30th. Damn it. Thwart <laughs> it again. It's November 4th in the year. Back in the 20th century. I, I thought you looked like you were 27. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 27. 27 is a good year. We're all wow. forever 27 it, here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 27 just came up on my phone. <laughs> You're kidding me. Oh, I'm not. If awesome. I had a camera handy, I would take a picture of it. It's oh, I believe you. It's like the hell you're 48. Yeah, there you go. Um, 27 is a way cooler number. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, 27 is 9, which is the Horizon 9. Um, Alan, are you familiar with uh, James Allen Egan in the Newport Tower and his theory that it's built by John D.? Or at least John D was the architect of it. No, uh, that's that's totally new information to me. Uh, but 
sing on. Um, I was down there for Jake's birthday. I mean, the equinox the other day and the light from the sun depend. There's three different windows built up on the top of it and the light from the sun will shine through it also, you know, it, it lines up on the equinoxes and even shines into this little cut apart what they call a fireplace, but it's like way too high off where the second floor would be to be a functional fireplace. And it's talking about how if there's there weren't all these developments and buildings there, that the water would reflect the sunlight so that the fiery water would appear in the fireplace. And on the spring equinox, of course, that's Pisces going into Aries. So you have mutable water into cardinal fire. And the whole thing's built according to these different astronomical devices and dimensions, including lunar minor and all of these other cool things that line up with the astronomical calendar. So I just think that's incredible that people don't know that the Newport Tower, which is on the flag of Newport, has all of these hidden meanings that can be very persuasively said to trace back to Dr. John D. And where is this located? Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, was there a Rhode Island in his time? I mean, <laughs> I it's suppose. The, yeah, this is the thing. Like, they, um, he goes, like, this is obviously something that it would probably, the book is Elizabethan America. And he goes back to proving how road is like analogous to Rose. And there's all these different pictures of Elizabeth on the ship. And when you go into safe Harbor, it's called the road. And there's a lot of moving pieces that all come into, um, that fit into place, but I don't know if I'd be capable or even able to remember all of the bits to, to make his case persuasively, but um, it, it is there. <laughs> it, it's I think I would be more inclined to think that it might have been built according to architectural plans that came from D or even D and Kelly and part of their uh, scrying. That's more credible. There's a lot of lost material. So uh, perhaps someone brought that over here. Um, the only reason I'm, I'm saying that is to, to give you an alternative that still says this, this place is of considerable significance. Um, and that it um, that is from earliest antiquity, uh, building buildings or monuments or whatever that coincide with certain uh, uh, astronomical phenomena uh, is is just part of uh, part of the human experience. Yeah, like so Stonehenge. Yeah, well, Stonehenge is the is the best known. Although I think you can make a good argument for the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza, and you can make an argument for a load of places that are far, far less less well known. Um, so, I mean, it it probably all over the world it follows the old straight tracks or the ley lines, and uh, uh, at certain key junctures, uh, people essentially built a permanent uh, observatory for readings, readings being knowing when certain things were appropriate. In the med medieval grammars of magic, it's very, very important, they say, uh, to do 
whatever the ritual is at the correct time of day and the correct day of the year. And if you don't, uh, if you don't do it then, don't expect anything to happen. I have not found that to be true in my own uh, work, but it is, uh, it is from the old texts, and I don't consider those people to be fools or charlatans by any means. So uh, knowing something about time long before clocks as we know them exist, something ice, um, the rising of Sirius is very important in a lot of cultures. Uh, apparently, in the um, Pueblo culture in uh, in the Southwest, uh, they built observatories so they could watch Sirius that one minute as it comes up before sun uh, obliterates it by just being brighter. Um, Is that and, the Hopi blue star Kachina? Well, I think it's a related thing. You know, there's that and the medicine wheels. Actually, that was one of the first things that, that Terry told me about, that he had uh, gone to several of these medicine wheels on equinoxes and solstices, and they all, they don't all align on the same thing, but they all align with certain uh, key astronomical phenomena. Or, interestingly enough, they clearly did align with it, but apparently the Earth is uh, wobbled a little bit since that kind of a Velikovskian uh, notion there. Nice. You don't you don't get to hear Velikovsky brought up every day. Sure you do. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I actually said uh, most people. I I really am only married to you because you know the difference between Velikovsky and Vygotsky. And I said, uh, yep, I sure do, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm now based on worse things. Set <laughs> me up. So I'm wondering about um, the Men in Black, and I want to, as a, as an introduction to this kind of like a little left hand turn that we're taking into this other room of this memory mind palace. Um, I'm wondering, are you familiar with the TV show Twin Peaks? And I'm familiar you love it. <laughs> thing that done. He's one of my favorite uh, mischief makers. Who's that, I David Lynch? Like, yeah, I even like Dune, you know, his version. And uh, apparently there are a lot of people who read the books who don't like it. And it was the movie that got me to read the books. So, say fair. But yes, Twin Peaks, I... I've watched every single episode, including the newer ones. So, I mean, like, you're talking to someone who could just, like, I was just holding up the secret history of Twin Peaks to the camera for Jake. Um, have you read that book, by the way? That it's kind of, like, phased between. So, the official chronology would be you'd want to watch the first season, the second season. Then you want to watch Fire Walk with me. Then there's this book called The Secret History of Twin Peaks, which was released in 2016 as a precursor to the third season, which is The Return, which, if you'll notice, it was released about at the Saturn's return of the original ending of the first series. And, of course, there's a final book after that, after the third, uh, the third series called The Final Dossier. But have you read any of the two books? 
No, I have not read the books. Uh, I rarely read anything about, uh, you know, uh, productions. It's just, that's me. Um, by the way, uh, the original two seasons of Twin Peaks were required watching in, under my predecessor at the Lodge of Antiquity local branch that I was uh, involved with way back in when, well, when Twin Peaks was on. Interesting. We watched it as a group, and you know, it was just part of the deal. Interesting. Show curriculum, though, of course, should be. Yeah. Well, the um, because you know, in the series, the theme of the black lodges and the white lodges is a prominent um, I guess, le motif. Oh yeah, and I well, actually, they don't say very much about the the white lodge but yes that, that's not only is that a uh, 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 sort of part of the mysticism it's also very real uh, i have i think there's a chapter in uh, secret cipher is there not about uh, um, the relationship between the black lodge and the men in black i think that's uh, that's fundamental um, I must say, and I don't mean to uh, preoccupy the time with talking about the Aged Templar Association, the ATA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we can talk about whatever you want. Uh, this is super enjoyable. Like, it's just good yes. to talk. Uh, the ATA, as we'll call it. Um, <laughs> They discouraged any discussion of the Black Lodge. And in fact, I did an article for the local newsletter and I was told, oh, the higher up members never discuss the Black Lodge. And of course, I thought that was really contrary to their roots, but so is just about everything that they do. Hmm. I didn't know that at the time. This is like mid-1980s. But I say a lot of bad things about my experience there, 20 years worth of experience there. But I did learn something about how a Black Lodge comes to be. Because it is said that Black Lodges, and the um, I think the term now is a bit uh, archaic and uh, inconsistent with the times we live in, but the uh, the so-called Black Brotherhood, uh, is actually involves, according to uh, the late Mr. Crowley, um, very advanced adepts who reach the near shore of the Great Abyss, which is where you supposedly lose uh, your personal self to your transcendent self. And rather than do that, they turn around and block those behind them from attaining. And at that point, they cease to be illuminous and become instead members of the Black Lodge or the Black Brotherhood, depending on how advanced they are. Black Brotherhood, advanced, flawed, 
in in some way that doesn't allow them to uh, transit the great abyss. Um, the um, the very group that I've been uh, ranting against or describing accurately, depending on how you look at it, and your listeners will vary on that, I suspect. Um, you will hear. You will hear from them. I believe that they started out as a, um, uh, an exploratory, open body of manifestation, and they turned black while I was in it. It was gradual. I didn't realize it completely until about two years before I left it. I stayed in for those couple of years because I thought I would have more clout if I stayed in. And sure enough, I got uh, many equivalent of uh, military fruit salad. Uh, in those couple of years, which I'm sure they rue, but you know, I have it up on one of my websites, uh, and I have have them scanned. So I I got many tributes. It's very hard to say, oh, he was a bad guy when they were saying, oh, he did great work for us. He did great work, great work for us. But he's a he's a cad and a whatever it is that I'm supposed to be. Um, learning about how a person can start out um, as a seeker and wind up being a person dedicated to being a barrier to anyone who is a, a sincere seeker at any level is a very, very valuable lesson in what this stuff is all about. Nobody is born evil, I don't think. Not Hitler, not whoever, you know, name whoever. Um, but by degrees, unintended. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> one can take a wrong turn, and that there again, if nobody tells you that you've taken a wrong turn, the next wrong turn is a little easier. The wrong turn after that you're defensive about you being the generic you, not you. And then it becomes a, a way of life and you see good is bad and bad is good. And I saw it happen. I saw it happen to many individuals and I saw it happen to the um, ancient order of tricksters uh, incorporated uh, one step at a time. And I was aghast. I'm not the only one who was aghast, but most people just walked away from it. Being me, I was both repelled and fascinated by seeing it because I realized exactly what was going on. They were becoming a black lodge, and such they are. So to your point, let me um, tie in the Twin Peaks allegory, and then we're going to see if this is a good general principle to go by. Uh, that's kind of what happened with uh, Agent Cooper is that he failed to confront his own shadow self in the Jungian sense or incorporate his shadow. So he fell at the abyss like Da'ath or however we could put it and therefore he became Doppelcooper or Evil Coop and that was what was released from the Lodge all those 25 years later, 
Would you, for that part of the Twin Peaks metaphor, would you say that's kind of accurate so far? I think it's absolutely accurate, and it's probably based. Um, it's based on the experiences that uh, uh, David Lynch himself has had. I know that his uh, his particular thing is transcendental meditation. Yes, and uh, the worst thing I can say about that is it's expensive, and I'm not sure that it's effective. But I, I don't consider it a black lodge in in any sense. Right, Mark but, Frost is really the occult guy between the two of them. Yeah, well, it, it may be that uh, you know that I don't know who. Let's put it this way: I don't know whose experience it was, but I think it's based on real experience. Yeah. In fact, the episode, and anyone who hasn't seen it, they're going to completely lose us here. But so be it. It's it's a long program. They can yeah. skip this part. Right? Alan, we'll, we'll, we're we're going to do it fairly, like a Doctor Who style, as River Song would say. Spoilers, darling. All right, you're good. Yeah, we're going to throw a spoilers tag on this. Uh... All right. <laughs> and probably, if you if you if you don't know, you still will want to see it, and will still surprise you. The episode with the nuclear blast, which reminded me a little bit of of, Car- of Carnival, which I also thought was really great. Um, episode uh, eight. Yeah, that basically is saying, uh, to to paraphrase one of our compatriots, a door opened and something came through. So that's what that's all about, I think. Like Jack Parsons' and Babylon workings and stuff like that. The door was open, but it was never shut. Bingo. Oh, we are on the same page. How embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I should probably put some pants on, but it's okay. Anyways. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We're among friends here. <laughs> are you get, I'm not I, wearing I promise any. it's just cold. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll take some of that tea. But anyways. Oh, it's ginger. It's got to be good. Oh, yeah. Then I'll spice it right up. Nice and spice. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> it's supposed to keep my voice very clear. <laughs> this is the sound of my voice. All right. This is the sound of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> the sound of my real voice. Oh, dear. This the sound of my video voice. The reptilian. The, now, now they're going to know that we're all reptilians, so that gave it away. It's okay. Well, now well, they in in this building, since I think reptilian is often a substitute for international bankers, which is often a substitute for the international Jewish conspiracy. I've never born. heard that. But what I want to know is, where is my copy of the secret book? Oh, we'll get it right out to you, Alan. Sorry, that's I, knew I forgot to do something today. Why am I not wealthy? We're supposed to be wealthy. <laughs> I, you know, I hear that about a lot of these groups of antiquity, but if, if they can't organize a Boy Scout march on a burlesque, you know, however you said it, maybe there's some disconnect in the conspiratorial mindset that is the reason that it is the conspiratorial minds. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying. They're just minor players. I mean, I'm not going to get into other organizations that are litigious uh, the, the, the Scientology people, they oh. have, <laughs> and they do make, uh, a, a, a buck and have power and, and, uh, get, uh, 
Tom Cousset to divorce <laughs> best looking woman in the world because her mother is a, what are the suppressive, uh, uh, suppressed depressive uh, person or whatever. <laughs> a pseudofidus. being, do it much better than the old, old, ancient, decrepit Templars. Oh, <laughs> The guy from Indiana Jones is coming to mind right now, the one who uh, melts away when he takes the wrong grail. Ah, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a wonderful scene. A little waxy, but good, good, good. It, Black it when his eyes really uh, gets there. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't stand up to modern graphics. But uh, have you seen? Um, speaking of Indiana Jones, have you seen the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Yes. So when they say at the okay, spoilers again. At the very end, when that alien thing comes into be, you know, it's the thirteen round table skeleton things all join into one interdimensional being. Do you remember what is said at the very end as the ship launches off up into the sky? No, tell this, me. <laughs> this is the million dollar question, folks. This is um, <laughs> yeah, soon it will be more computers doing that. But anyways, until then, he says, did it go up into the stars? And then the answer comes, no, it went into the spaces between the stars. Ah, uh, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's where it's all at. The interdimensional tell. Mm-hmm. Well, we're at spaces between the stars right now, moving with the rest of our alleged universe. Although I keep finding revisionist science sort of questioning the whole existence of the universe. And I'm all for that because it could be a better universe. Just saying. <laughs> so, do you know the original name, the earliest possible name of the tarot card known as the Tower? The Tower? I know the magician was originally the juggler, but no, I don't think I know what the Tower was. The Tower was originally La Maison de the House of God. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they all have primordial names that, that they're probably not the original name either, but that's, that's a good way of tracing the authentic tradition through the permutations of the tarot cards. They change drastically at the turn of the last century between uh, when the Golden Dawn put out its own deck or to put, be more accurate when Pamela Coleman Smith. Yeah. Deck for a weight. Uh, yeah. And, and that's a magnificent deck. But up until then, the lower arcana were never pictured. After that, almost all decks, unless they're retro decks, um, the lower arcana are as scenic as the higher arcana. So um, uh, the lower arcana are basically playing cards. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, the higher arcana, which are genuine archetypal images, and the lower arcana, which are not, but which were playing cards, got combined. I don't know when, probably in the 1300s, 1400s. So the, by the time the, uh, the deck, which we don't have a complete deck, but we have some of the cards, 
was done during the uh, Renaissance, beautiful cards. Um, some of the purpose was lost. However, I've been I've been reading since 1962. I may be the senior most reader in the United States, except for maybe some Romani people, the elderly Romani people. And uh, um, it's the intricacies of what that's all about, why it works, and <clears throat> that has a lot to do with Jungian uh, I think, because definitely. Which doesn't explain why I'm up here in the lightning struck tower on the third floor. Nope. <laughs> and without oh, no. your, without your book, mind you. I do. I have a book. <laughs> you said that you didn't get sent the book, so I said you were without your book. Oh no, 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 no! I have my book. I don't have that book. I yeah, don't have roots. Oh, because okay, I never enough. got a because that publisher. Let me tell you that that guy boom, 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 disappeared. I did not get any royalties. So rant, rave, go on. <laughs> it's not about the money. It's the principle of the thing, but the money too. You know, I'm poor. Well, I, I, drew the I drew the Ten of Swords as you said that, so I guess the affair's over with for now. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, the publisher was very bad to me. Very, very bad. Um, I did just draw the justice card, though, so maybe there's something coming from for coming from that in the future. Ah, uh, what you just drew it? Yep, <laughs> I, I know. I'm, I'm a quick draw. Quick draw, a quick draw. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't do any good impressions, so I, otherwise, I would do something like Droopy Dog or something like that. Deputy Dog, I do really good impressions. What about um? What about uh, who's the guy who does suffering succotash? So, uh, yeah, suffering succotash. That's a that's a Mel Mel Blanc uh, impression. Sylvester the cat, right? Yeah, that's Sylvester. Um, no, no, no. It isn't Sylvester. It's one of the other characters from the uh, Warner Brothers uh, catalog of great cartoon figures. Oh, I thought it was were, Sylvester the cat. It wasn't uh, Yosemite Sam? No, he was like, he just got hopping mad about stuff and would shoot his guns off. Ah, well, what did he say? Yeah, you're right. It was Sylvester. I hang um, my head in shame at not instantly knowing that. But but lift your head in, in pride at being able to, um, I, get, I think we were going to get around to what the men in black were. And since you've probably done some of the most important work in our time, and that's not just throwing your compliments, that's literally like probably some of the most, just, uh, what did it say on the internet? Hashtag just saying. Um, what do we think? 11. Of, huh? You said men in black at 11, 11 p.m. Oh, fuck. Jesus. All right. Yes. All right. All right. Well, interestingly enough, I'll say That's this. I'll you. say this. Huh? Nothing. I didn't say anything. <laughs> it was I, a voice from out of the ether, ether, ether. Oh, that's okay. I, I think I didn't hear it anyways. Um, oh, that's speaker, 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 speaker. Now I kind of want to know what it was. There's no feedback. 
feedback? Feedback? I don't remember. I just talk without thinking. So I'm in that club. It's sort of channeling. Consider anything that I say channeling. I drew the um the four of wands when you said eleven eleven. So that's kind of cool. Yes. Um. All right. Well, I'm sure that whatever I didn't hear will mean that it cannot come back to haunt any of us. But that well, it's on on tape or whatever you're. I don't know. I think if I'm talking over it, it doesn't register. So yeah. We'll, well be okay. Very, no, he tweets eleven eleven at eleven eleven most days. Eleven eleven's kind of my number, you know. <laughs> yes, and it also has a secret meaning in the somewhat almost defunct magical order QBLH, of which I was an enthusiastic supporter. I think you might say it was the earliest uh, uh, example of free Illuminism. It had a nominal leader, uh, the late W.W. Webb, no pun intended, that's really <laughs> what it was, William W. Webb. Um, uh, but uh, 1111, he thought, was the key to the sexual gnosis of magic. Huh. Which he interpreted as God between two women. I like this guy. And I can worry <laughs> about that be off the air because that definitely involves some really raunchy This show usually has a mature um, sticker thing on it sometimes so if you want to tell a version of that, that's fine. Well, Bill Webb was a uh, a mix between a, um, a very wise old line Megas from that era in the 1950s and 60s where outside of borderland sciences and the Theosophical Society, there wasn't any occultism in America. There wasn't much occultism anywhere in the world because it really does run in cycles. But Bill and a couple of other people started the order QBLH. They incorporated it in California or Arizona, somewhere out there. And... Um, he developed a theory of, uh, technically he was a seventh degree in the uh, grant uh, organization. The, the order of antiquity. The, no, the Typhonian order. I, I will say that because I have nothing good things to say about it. Oh, okay. Except he did have that tendency to fire people that he didn't like. Ah. And he could. That's the difference with why he was not a free illuminist, because if he were a free illuminist, he wouldn't have the power to fire anybody. But he fired everybody, and including some really, really hotshot good magicians. Uh, so Grant had his, I was going to say dark side, but I don't know that he had a light side. Let's <laughs> say he good dark side and his bad dark side. The tunnels of the darker side. and turns. And that's that's one of the twists but not one of the turns because i i don't know what that means but it really sounds profound doesn't it where <laughs> it were sounds we? wicked profound i might have Minute to black. i might have to use that for the tag of the show let me give you my rap on the men in black first oh, wait, of all i don't wait, you, any difference men in black and the hat the... man and uh and the uh, black-eyed kids and yeah. uh, they're all the same thing manifesting in different ways 
they're also not that different from the gray aliens in the sense that I don't think that they're actually, in most cases, that they're actual independent autonomous beings. I think they are tulpas, uh, yeah. thought projectors. And they only have a certain limited time period to come in, scare the bejesus out of somebody, and then excuse themselves and dissolve. So that's, uh, that's the question. Because in Twin Peaks, like Diane, remember what happened with her? She just kind of like got sucked out of the reality like that? Yeah, that was a really gruesome scene, but yeah. But now that's what I wanted to connect this to. Are the men in blacks? That's a similar because she was a tulpa in the third series. Mm-hmm. And the the, the the that's what I think they are. They're tulpas. They're uh, whose tulpas they are is a more interesting thing. That's but, what uh, I was wondering. Well, let me let me back up a little bit because this was where I had a breakthrough on this, and it uh, was well before. Well, well before the uh, before I ever laid eyes on uh, the Twin Peaks series, it was um, um, one of the first experiences I was interested in was the uh, Albert K. Bender uh, Three Men in Black case, which was the origin of the term Three Men in Black. I mean, because they don't always come in threes; they sometimes come in ones, twos, threes, and they're not always men. Um, there's uh, an excellent book about the women in black. Nick Redfern. Yes, Nick. I always publicize his books because they're terrific and also because he asked me to. (laughs) Both of those. Uh, So... I, I joined my UFO group. Um, I, I, without going into the tale, and I'll, I'll please finish, I just want to say I was listening to a podcast about the women in black when I discovered the person who got me into the UFO group that I'm part of. So little personal synchronicity there. Oh, well, that may not be synchronicity. It's a relatively small community of activists, and it's smaller than it was 20 years ago. Uh, Like the occult, it waxes and wanes. And I think what is happening there, this is a side thing, but I pretty well can guarantee you I won't forget the men in black thing that I was going to say because it's, like something that I have uh, given a great deal of thought to it's, um, over a long period of time. But, um, well, why don't I just go to that? What the hey? Yeah, you know what? what the we can do the wax and wane. We, see, the points themselves can wax and wane. Well, the only point about that is that uh, uh, ufology, and for that matter, certain aspects of paranormal research have been um, the traditional sort of um, ground level association with that, that is uh, members of the civilian saucer intelligence in New York or or the uh, Cleveland Ufology Project, other groups that have come and gone and uh, um, uh, have been sort of replaced by these uh, three plumbers on TV that uh, that go into haunted houses and get scared. Ah. I mean, that's, you know, in, in other words, the Internet and television have essentially replaced um, amateur ufology and amateur paranormal work in the traditional sense. 
I mean, amateur is for the love of it rather than for the money involved. And the television stuff is mostly done by people who have no idea what they're doing or they have a lot of knowledge of television pizzazz. Yep. Yeah, but no knowledge really of the depths of, of occultism or or uh, a paranormal research or they probably, if you said, uh, what about the investigations done by the uh, Society for Psychical Research? They'll say, what's that? Um, you know, that's uh, not, uh, they're, they're not in depth. And I've done some of those programs. I've done UFO Hunters and uh, twice, actually. And, um, Oh, Meltzer's decoded. <laughs> Three Stooges, apparently, but that's okay. It has Stooges there. Um, I should have had to be a member of the um, uh, Screen Actors Guild to do that program. Uh, but uh, because the things that you see are in reverse order, and the most interesting answers that I gave are cut out. But they cut to some wacko guy who says the Statue of Liberty is, should be torn down because it's an Illuminati plot. plot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My answer was, wouldn't matter if it was. It has come to mean freedom to millions of and I waxed very, very patriotic. You could hear in the background, oh, beautiful Because <laughs> I knew this was going to be on TV, and even on a bad day, millions of people are going to see it, including, you know, bored people at the, uh, the CIA, FBI, B.B. King, and Doris Day. Uh, it doesn't matter. The really, really important thing about that is that I learned that those things are essentially a matter of acting they're not a matter of investigation at all yeah um, even the guy with the hair uh is Sukulos. Sukulos. <laughs> i'm not saying it was aliens saying it might have been aliens um i think that the i think that we were going somewhere with men in black and we don't have to go back there right now but if you uh maybe we want to do that because i just i think i just got lost a little bit all i was saying was that essentially the number of people who spontaneously get involved in in <sighs> mythology and blah, blah 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 are less than they were in, in, in terms of numbers in terms I of remember. yes well, I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I mean, I can remember when it was the teen ufology movement and centered around Ray Palmer's Flying Saucer magazine, and we had conventions, some of them really, really, really big. The biggest was the one at the Commodore Hotel, which uh, Mr. Bump, Mr. Rump, don't tell me, I'll get his name right, Trump. Ah. <laughs> Tore down and built a Rump, no, 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 Trump Tower, yes. Was so that, that Fate was the, Magazine? Fate, no, the Fate Convention I was at, nobody came to my talk. It was really, well, eight, including Jerome Clark, who I proceeded to get into a very, very big argument with, which basically was, nobody showed up for my talk. 
Then a guy came in, asked me for an autograph, and said, your book changed my life. So I was transformed on that. But that was the one time Faye had a convention, and uh, uh, Margaret Mead was there. Uh, oh, wow. I mean, it was just uh, Kenneth Arnold was there. Um, it was just people I had not seen. Ray Palmer was there while I had met Ray, but uh, I mean, that was the last thing I think he attended. Um, and How he was not that? big on things. I think it was because it was put on by his former uh, co uh, editor of Fate, uh, Kurt Filler. Um, so everybody in ufology of that period were there. I, of course, got waylaid by uh, uh, some quaint guy who had a cool looking magazine and then he turned out to be a Jesus freak and said, well, how do you stand with the Lord? And I said, I'm Jewish. He said, oh, uh, <laughs> the is, how does the Lord stand with me? <laughs> anyway, he left the convention, but uh, everybody else stayed except Margaret Mead. She left with, she was carrying this big walking stick and my friend, the late great Jim Mosley was. I was standing with him, and he said, "That's Margaret Mead." And he pulls out his autograph book that he'd been using. I mean, he was like fifty, sixty at the time, but he was acting like a kid getting an autograph from a movie star. So we chased. I chased him. He chased Margaret Mead. She was faster than the speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, and he never did catch up with her. Oh. She apparently believed in making a quick entrance and a quick exit. And I was impressed with that. I did not meet Kenneth Arnold. I would have asked him one question. You're supposed to say. What's that? <laughs> the question that I asked, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, the question that I would have asked him, and I still want to know if anybody knows, I would like to know, was he a Freemason? Oh. Freemasonry, but June 24th is the classical Freemasonic patron saint holiday. The, the, it's St. John, uh, uh, John the Baptist Day. Uh, they switched to St. John the Evangelist. Uh, did I mess that up? Sorry. Yeah, St. John the Evangelist then. But no, no, that's June 24th is St. John the Baptist. And originally the Masons, uh, that was their patron saint and they celebrated it on june 24th yeah and the, the on, other one on the 27th of december yeah well but that's not a significant date in ufology i mean there are, you can probably find sightings on that day because there are sightings every day 365 days a year somewhere in the world but yeah. on june 1947 kenneth arnold was flying over the Cascade Mountains, see that there's certain things that you just can't say in any other way. Jim Mosley always started his speech with, on June 24, 1947, Kenneth Arnold, a Bush pilot, was flying over the Cascade Mountains when he saw, and he always used it exactly like this, with this inflection, nine gleaming objects. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> uh, nine gleaming objects, yeah, Jim. Jim uh, had a very, very dry sense of humor. Um, but uh, now on to the men in black. I drew the nine of wands when you said nine, by the way. I just want you to know that. Well, that's a, that's a 
favorable omen because the wands are the suit of magic. I also drew it from the... Sorry, go ahead. Shazam, I said. Shazam! I I also drew it from the Masonic Tarot deck, just to add to the... You sound like me 40 years ago. My friend Sam and I spent night after night, weeks, months on end, Way into the night, just reading cards, reading cards over and over and over, different decks. Uh, Back in that day, I had a house, I had a library with a thousand volumes in it, Uh, and uh, we became proficient at that time, had breakthroughs. Then we came to reading about a guy who was unreadable. And we wound up using every deck that I had because we just kept laying out cards further and further, trying to get a concluding uh, point in the reading. Well, I just looked this guy up on the Internet that we were reading on, and he's still an elusive uh, person who's basically where he was when we were reading in, I don't know, 1972, that's the year Steely Dan released their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. That's amazingly unrelated, but good. <laughs> it was in my, it was actually, I was thinking about Steely Dan all morning. So it's related, it related to me. But anyways, um, I, this unreal guy sounds like a, a challenge that I want to take on. But anyways. Oh, you'd never have, believe me, you don't want to take this guy on. But I'll tell you about that. I don't want to mention his name because he's a somewhat sad person that we used to know. Where Sam joined a cult and uh, drove into a tree and died at 49 uh, in a car crash, which was incredibly predictable. There was a time in Atlanta where every single cop knew him by name from his being a speed demon. May he rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, there is don't join cults and drag. <laughs> You're gonna rest. Cults, join no, me. no, no, no. He wouldn't rest in drag, although heaven knows. Uh, <laughs> but speaking of drag, the men in black nice. <laughs> nice. were not in drag. But that's <laughs> not important. Right now. What is important is what I was going to say much earlier. Yes. The thing that I was going to say. I'm going to take this gun and shoot you now, now, now. <laughs> the thing that I, say, that I was going to say before, if you don't stop talking, I'm going to take this gun and shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Jake just went everywhere, and so did I. Okay. Men in Black. Men in Black. Yes. Um, uh, there, there are two different strains that I want to mention. One is that... Um, At the 1953 CIA panel that was convened to consider whether UFOs represented any kind of threat to national security, um, it followed and was uh, initiated because of the July 1952 UFO wave over the White yeah, well, over the White House, the Pentagon, restricted airspace in D.C. Um, not well known then, and certainly not publicized, 
but very, very important. And you have to put yourself in the context of part of the Cold War period, especially the early Cold War period, where a lot of the things were, um, how shall I put it, not uh, not well integrated in terms of defense. On it, it apparently, and I was told this by um, the guy who had been the um, Pentagon monitor um, for the um, for Project Blue Book, um, which was a little bit later. I guess it was Project Blue Book or Project Grudge at that point. In any case, apparently the the interest generated that night caused the entire defense system of the United States to be compromised uh, so that had there been this unlikely, in my opinion, Soviet attack by bombers, which was all that there was at that time, we would have been wide open, so they say. At least this was the mentality of that period. Radar was looking for flying saucers. Jets that had been scrambled were looking for flying saucers. The um, people that would become ufologists, the people who were in the ground observer corps, because back then and all the way up until about 1960, I think, the ground observer corps was like the backup. They knew what Soviet planes looked like, they knew what bombers looked like, and they went out every night as volunteers with binoculars, and they looked for uh, the invasion to come. Well, the CIA panel reached the kind of conclusion one would expect during the McCarthy era. Joe McCarthy, not Gene. <laughs> okay. They concluded that private UFO organizations might be infiltrated by the evil communist agents. The Ruskies. No, the American, their American allies, oh. the little old ladies' party, as I call them. Because by then, you know, I mean, in the 1930s, there was a serious uh, Communist Party USA. By the 1950s, it was little old ladies. And by the 1960s, as somebody observed, I think it was Bill Buckley, their, the, their newspaper, the Daily Worker, first of all, it wasn't daily anymore. And second, the obituary section was a lot bigger than anything else in the newspaper. They were not any kind of real threat. But anyway, to the CIA, uh, it was important that this UFO thing be denied. I guess this flying saucer thing be denied because and private UFO organizations were thought to be a threat because if they exist and if they get infiltrated by the evil communist empire, <laughs> then evil communists might cause UFO waves to take place in order to preoccupy our defenses so the Soviets can sneak attack and blow up Manhattan. Oh, geez. So they decided to disrupt private UFO organizations. Shortly thereafter, all over the world, such few organizations as existed back then, with the exception of APRO, which was located in um, Tucson, I think, where I went to school. 
Um, in any case, they were um, they ceased to exist for a variety of reasons. I think that was explanation one for men in black cases. They were people sent out in uniform sometimes, sometimes dressed weirdly, sometimes asking weird questions in order to freak out these 1950s people all over the world so that they closed down their organization with their membership of 40, you know, whatever it was. Yeah, I can and, see that. But explanation number two is much more interesting. I don't think the government of the United States was doing that when men in black cases first occurred because they go back to antiquity. There wasn't any CIA, there wasn't any United States, there wasn't even uh, any kind of European settlement in the Western Hemisphere. Right. Uh, so clearly wasn't. And going forward, you get out of the McCarthy era uh, and get into the era where you have sophisticated radar uh, you have the Ground Observer Corps was dissolved because seeing uh, uh, ICBMs was not possible, and that was the preferred method of destroying the world at that point. So um, it, it ceased to be any any kind of viable explanation. I think the government got out of the harassing UFO group business somewhere 1958, 1960-ish. But the men in black cases, which had started before whatever they were doing, continued after whatever they were doing. And I had investigated uh, as best I could, given that the primary witness uh, uh, of the classic uh, men in black case, uh, Albert K. Bender, who just passed away this couple of years ago, um, having completely left UFO field. In fact, he was involved in, he was a World War II vet. He was involved in, uh, uh, I believe, uh, the uh, LA Symphony Orchestra or something equally oh. responsible to that and totally out of touch with anybody in the UFO field insofar as I knew. And I knew the people that he would have been in contact with, uh, Gray Barker, Jim Mosley, uh, Jack Robinson, et cetera. Um, if he was, you know, talking to anybody. Forget the second book, uh, supposedly written by Bender, actually written by Gray Barker, Flying Saucers and the Three Men. Go back to they knew too much about the flying saucers and other things that were put out about Bender's experience and shutting down the, the first viable UFO group, the International Flying Saucer Bureau, I believe it was called. I have for my time. I mean, it came and went before I got involved. Um, Bender seemed to be a um, fiction fan who had a sideline in interest in flying saucers. I say he was a science fiction fan because he, um, I, I gather he was not from a wealthy family. He lived with his folks at that time. Uh, I guess he was in his 20s. That was a little unusual in the 50s, but not that unusual. He had flown to the World Science Convention in England, uh, and that takes some, you know, that's 
that was a fairly major thing in the early 1950s. And even in the, um, the bulletin of that group that was devoted to flying saucers, there was some science fiction news as well. So he, he integrated those things. And that's what you heard about Bender. Lived with his folks. These guys came to the door. They gave him uh, a word to contact them. Kaik, mysteriously spelled K-A-Z-I-K. So how did he know it was spelled K-A-Z-I-K unless they wrote it down? Yeah. Or, or he asked them how it was spelled. Right. One of the there are ways to explain it, but it's strange. And they gave him this little disc that was supposed to, I guess he said the word and pressed the disc. Somewhere along the line in my magical career, I thought, gee, a disc and a magic word puts you in touch with these beings and they yeah, it's appear. Like, it's like an Enochian seal or something. Exactly. Bingo. Okay, and then... To top that, I was already ready, prepared to say not only was he interested in science fiction and flying saucers, and arguably if he read Fate magazine, he was interested in uh, paranormal research or what passed for that at that period. Um, he was also interested in the occult at a time when occult interest was practically zero in the United States and practically zero in the Western world. I mean, that was one of those interim periods uh, that we can date between the fall of the Golden Dawn and the rise of Israel Regardi and the book, The Eye and the Triangle, which kind of set the mood in the late 1960s for the second magical revival of the 20th century. There was nothing in the late in the 1950s or 60s, nothing. I had the opinion that he probably was a magician. He had conjured these beings up and they were in fact magical manifestations, helpers, um, that, uh, uh, that had scared him because he, it's one thing to conjure something. It's another thing to know what to do with it once you've conjured it. I always right. say, if I take on students, which I don't do anymore, I would, individual students, I would say, I will teach you to banish and exercise long before you learn to do anything in the way of conjuration. Because it's a lot easier to bring something into your conscious existence than it is to send it back where it came from. Right. Or something nasty comes through. More likely that than something positive. And then, in an obscure publication published just months before Gray Barker passed on, um, he got out uh, a book that I had not seen. Gray had been ill for a couple of years. Um, as it turns out, it suspected that he had AIDS, which I knew Gray very well. That's very plausible, although it didn't have a name at that point, and this was early 1980s, he was sick for a long time, it was nonspecific, nothing could be done about it. He just slowly faded away. And he had, uh, other than to send me tapes of his little mischievous, uh, we'll call it a pre-podcast. Um, ah. 
it, it was like, you know, it had four or five people that he sent it to. He just made copies and copies of, of a cassette tape. Um, I think it was called Cranes from the Cranium. <laughs> and it was, he had an a interview with the Scarboroughs, who were key witnesses to the, uh, to the Mothman uh, phenomena and, in, at its peak and oh, other things. Wow. I may have that actually because I I got rid of all of my cassettes because I had nothing to play them on. Yeah. But I think I may have trans. I knew I transferred some things like my precious skills and collection of angry songs. Um, I, I may have transferred it to disc, so I, it may be immortalized somewhere in the depths of my computer or my um, compact discs. I would love I to hear a, that. Yeah, it's well worth it and there were again there were only a few copies ever made so i don't know how many still exist if any but in any case um i think rick hilberg may have heard the interview if not the the whole program he's like one of the old ufologists from from the cleveland ufology project and a good friend um until recently, he got out the only hard copy newsletter that still existed in ufology that I know of. He just stopped publishing about a year ago. He still, you, if you go to my news feed, he uh, uh, reprints a lot of old cases and illustrations from um, years his newsletter ran. I think it ran 50 years. Very oh, wow. Long, yeah, very long run. Um, so I, I look at this publication that Barker got out. It was all something really hot boilerish, which was Gray's forte, called uh, something like the Men in Black, the Terror Among Us. I'm not even sure that uh, that guy that's reprinted a lot of Barker's stuff, he wrote me and he said, is Barker's stuff copyrighted? And I said, uh, some of it was never copyrighted, and including the Silver Bridge, which he reprinted and was kind enough to let me write a new introduction. Oh, that's cool. The, well, I wrote the original introduction in 1971 when I was a dorky kid. And <laughs> dorky kids do not write great introductions to really great books. So I wrote a new introduction, but I left the original in there so that you know you could compare the two and maybe make sense out of the book more easily. Well, that's a um, thing to do. Yeah, I think he may have reprinted anything that wasn't nailed down. <laughs> I'm not being catty. I mean, Kessinger Publication has done great things with everything Masonic and offbeat that isn't nailed down and, and does a print on demand. I really think that's wave of the future. And I'm not real keen on copyrights anyway. It's like when somebody steals something that I write, and, you know, puts it out on the internet. Yeah. I don't. I don't really mind at all. I mean, I'm I'm complimented, and it's more important to get the information out than to get me extra grocery money. I think you have the right attitude on it. I I feel in a similar manner. Yeah, at least people are reading it. I mean, you still got to eat and stuff, but right. Yeah, there, there's a didn't even write as a book that's out there on, on witchcraft. Uh, and uh, I've never seen it, but I've seen it advertised. And apparently somebody is making money. I think it's a Canadian source, but 
they simply took an article that I wrote, fleshed it out into a book, and published it as the true history of Wicca or something similar to that, which was the name of the article. But I've never complained about it. I mean, it's fine. I'm glad it's out there. It's, an, it's another book that I didn't write. <laughs> One of my books that I didn't write. Uh, that would be an interesting title right there. But to get back to whatever I was talking about, what you was I talking about? The about? second kind of Men in Black, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so I look at this, this book that Gray published towards the end of his life. It was not well done. It was, uh, he was into excellence in publishing, and um, uh, all of his stuff was better in terms of its production values than most of what was coming out in ufology at that time, because it was, you know, it was an amateur thing. Um, percent of the people. I always say the only person that's ever made money out of UFOs is Timothy Green Beckley, Mr. UFO. <laughs> Book a week he gets out there, seems like. But in any case, um, I turned, there was a page of photos in the book. Not well reprinted, but it was photos, I guess Bender took him himself, of Albert K. Bender's room. And I had read a description of it and it sounded like he had all the Halloween decorations. So I thought, well, he's into spooky stuff, that's cool. And I, I look at these pictures and I blew them up and enhanced them with uh, whatever program I was using to en enhance. Yeah. There's a, there's a magical altar in the uh -huh. east in his room. So I, it, it just totally hit me. He not only was dabbling in magic, he was doing magic. I only know of one other person in that era, early 1950s, that was doing that. And that was uh, a, a rare thing, an initiate left over from the 1940s, uh, a guy named Mead Lane, who I write quite a bit about, who was the first head of the Borderlands is research associates now called BS still around what's it called it? what's it called now borderland sciences research foundation BSRF okay I don't know who's now it's it but um, he was the first uh, director and whatever the title is and uh, was a true initiate. I mean, you can tell from his writings and uh, uh, worked with a lot of trans channels, uh, uh, used the term flying discs as early as 1945 uh, in, the, in their publication, The Round Robin, I think. And um, um, I talk a lot about uh, his best uh, trans channel, Mark Probert, who um, uh, did the kind of UFO trans-channeling that has become much more common since then. Um, not so common now, but it was common for 25, 30 years. And it's still around. I mean, you look on the internet, you'll see very suspicious stuff from Ashtar Command, which Ashtar is the name of a demon from classical um, Assyria, I believe. Yeah, um, it has an interesting... Um what is that? NAEQ, or it has an interesting um, 
meaning when you when you look at the gematria or the uh, the cipher of it too, doesn't it? Yep, and an interesting backstory because supposedly, and this doesn't come from ufology sources, this comes from the Wayback Machine, so to speak, not the Wayback site, but way back in history, uh, it was said that Ashtar pretends not to be a fallen angel, but he moved to America and takes a special interest in America. And that's where almost all of the channelings from very different channels, people that are unconnected to each other, um, have gotten in touch with Ashtar or Ashtar Command or some little variant of of that name. I think it's, and it even has involved some people that I have a lot of respect for, like the late uh, Trevor James Constable, who was lived a very long life and had very, very interesting ideas about UFOs. In any case, when I saw that altar and saw the decora decorations that I knew were there, yeah. I realized was his room was a magical temple he conjured up these beings they gave him a, um, a talisman and a word similar to a password or a, uh, a real word in Freemasonry a summoning word uh, you can play with that if you want to I have and um, I don't think it's for anybody else so it won't work for you and you should be happy with that because <laughs> it brought beings that were non-beings that came and scared him i don't know that they were intent on scaring him it's just a case of you ask for demons you better be prepared for demons right you ask for angels you still better be prepared for demons <laughs> it's uh it's not an exact science to be kind about it and uh and that was the Kazik one, right? The K A Z I K. Yeah. Okay. K A I K M O U S C. <laughs> Kazik Mouse. Damn. Kazik Mouse. Here's your hat. Here's <laughs> your ears. Yes, I'll put it on top of my invisible no agenda hat. That's what I'll do. Yeah. Well, just don't put it on top of your tinfoil hat because then your transmissions will go awry. You know? Yeah, they'll they'll invert. Mm -hmm. It'll start running backwards in my head. Story on, once I realized that about the Bender case, more recent cases just sort of fall into place. Clearly, they're magical manifestations. Possibly a person sees whatever UFOs are, some kind of resolution that we make of a phenomena that's probably... Um, a lot more complex than what we're seeing. Yeah, it's and like flatland. Sets off a signal of some sort. And when that signal is set off, certain people in certain places receive a visit. Uh, Keel said there were a lot of silent contactees. And using the classical word rather than abductees or anything. Yeah, there are thousands of people that uh, have been... Um, communicated with in one way or another by a seemingly physical presence that was scary and uh, that often involves repetition of the same thing that nominally has uh, scientific trappings but which make no sense at all like the uh, the, the famous rectal probe uh, 
It's like, uh, I wonder if on the uh, 15th plane of Klaatu, Barada, Nikto, <laughs> they have this thing where they sell for 40 goldsies uh, the privilege of uh, scaring the bejesus out of uh, some hapless human by sticking a, well, never mind. You know where I'm going with that. A thermometer. And, uh, it happens so often that uh, <clears throat> unless they're proctologists from outer space, which would make a really good movie if Ed Wood was still around. Proctologists from outer space. Space, space. <laughs> so, uh, so there we are. I think that's the story of the second group of men in black, which is much more significant for obvious reasons. The story of a man named Bender. That's the story of a man named Bender. It's the story of a man named Bender who had three men that were very, very strange. They've come from all of them had hair under their black hats. And I don't know the last line. And they the were name. quite deranged. And Kayak was their name. Nice. <laughs> Maybe um, I have a few. I have at least a few more things that I want to make sure that we um, we touch on. Like one thing I noticed in the um, in the Roots of Magic. You know how you said that. Um, uh, forgive me. I, Dark Journalist and Olivia from Dark Journalist, and you got to check that out. Um, it's they talk about Bulwar Lytton and Emma Britton in the Orphic Society, and it's it, you mentioned how Britton. Uh, talked about to my dear Lewis in Art Magic in Ghostland. Do you remember yeah. what I'm... Do you think yeah, she was exactly what... Lewis Carroll? Oh, no. I think Lewis was a fictional thing because it was very hard for a woman to make it as a writer in that period. And the general consensus of opinion of the handful of people that know uh, who she is, although she at one time was famous in spiritualist circles, is that basically she was just writing this those two books herself uh and and created lewis as a kind of george sand sort of yeah ma male uh amine whatever the word is uh you know that, that a nom is, de uh, plume a nom de plume i remember him <laughs> my late friend sam used to go by the name sam de plume Nobody ever challenged him on it. Sam DePoom. Um, that kind of has a ring to it. I was wondering yep. if you're um if you have any insight into what the invisible superiors or you know I guess the hidden masters or uh, maybe these advanced adepts. Do you have any insight into what those are? Yeah, I think I I know what they are. Um, just as some. I draw a little bit on Eastern thought here, which I'm not real keen on because uh, Eastern stuff doesn't fit well in a Western garden, to paraphrase Crowley. Uh, I like that. Yeah, he, he said that uh, he said that about Christianity. He said Christianity is distorted because it's an Eastern plant planted in a Western garden, and I that stuck with me because yeah. It, it strikes me that that is true. Um, I'm not fluent in Koine Greek because uh, it's very bad Greek, but I am pretty fluent in in uh, Hebrew. 
a classical Hebrew and the amount of stuff that gets lost in translation and because the assumptions of the Greek world and the uh, the Jewish world of antiquity is just it's lost in in, in translation uh, well, it's all it Greek to me sorry I had to I had I had to now, to back it up, it's a little Meshuggah. Anyways, please go. <laughs> and it's midnight. You said Meshuggah at midnight. Now, I if did? I said Rumpelstiltskin, then we would both turn into elves I, or factories. Which I don't be a cool name for a show, Meshuggah. I was thinking that. You know, we might turn into elf factories. Yes, well, then we would be able to stamp out elves. I'm uh, not stamp that, them out, but I mean have I a stamping machine that creates elves. I hope elves. It that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I did. You know, don't crush that dwarf. Hand me the pliers. <laughs> but they're so tiny and squishy. Yeah, well, that's true. But, uh, you know, I, the little pliers, not the big ones. You know, if the, one, the jeweler's pliers. If they're me muffins and, like, different delicious pastries, I will definitely not squish any squish any dwarves or elves. Or gnomes, for that matter. I am. I am equal opportunity here. Or if they're yeah, right. well. Yep, that's exactly right. And they live under the bridge, but that's not important right now. Yes, we. Oh, don't I want recommend to, we don't the movie. And the movie Absentia, which is obscure and was filmed with a handheld camera, and nevertheless has production values as good as some of my son's films, but. Uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's a really wonderful film about something that lives under the bridge. Absentia. Mm -hmm. There's a porcupine tree album in Absentia. Right. That is a pure movie, but it actually came up in a conversation with somebody the day before yesterday. I had, so. do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess uh, another thing I noticed. Um, now that we've hit midnight, it is March 29th, and this is the day of the mistaken day of P.B. Randolph's death. He had said that um, now that I'm on the other side of March 29th, which was 1875, mm -hmm. but his actual mm -hmm. death was July 29th, 1875. Do you want to talk a little bit about his self-inflicted death and the nature of perhaps the, um, the sacrifice to pass the power on to the son who becomes the king? Well, that's a, an interesting interpretation, and I think I held with it until I read the material that uh, indicates that he was actually murdered. <gasps> um, the guy who killed him confessed years later. That is not something that often gets mentioned, and certainly I believe the story that uh, uh, I've heard about Madame Blavatsky that, uh, um, that at the time of his death, she knew that he had, you know, they were rivals. I mean, the HB of L, which was really the, you know, the ins inspire all of the organizations that profess to know uh, the central secret of sexual magic. <laughs> they all go back to to PB Randolph. I mean, I don't, I can't find anything that comes before, and I do know that Randolph was in touch with. Uh, one of the founders of uh, later societies that professed to be the exclusive uh, purveyor of that secret, which 
like I said, isn't a secret. Um, right. Um, apparently, first of all, the, the, the suicide story doesn't seem very, um, unless you use the, you know, the, the king must die uh, analogy there, which was very popular in Fraser's day. And I think the last exponent of it was, what was her name? Mary Renault. Um, big influence on me when I was a kid, but uh, it's, you know, it's not a favored anthropology theory now. Second, a guy confessed to having murdered Randolph on his deathbed. Um, I don't remember his name, but I do have the name somewhere on my computer. I, I save everything, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that, including if I want to find something. <laughs> You know, it's 17 layers deep, or it's on my backup drive. That's a, you know, it's a terabyte drive, so it's a lot of stuff. Down yeah, there. I'm in that club too. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, you know, theoretically, one could be orderly about saving this stuff, but the fact is, it's been migrated from one computer to another to another. Even yep. migrated between systems. I used to have a Mac, and I've been using. Uh, uh, PCs for a very long time. Don't like them as well, but don't have the kind of I was going to say, how could you do that? Money. Ah, uh, yes. Macintosh. Long story. Chaotic marriages and money. <laughs> Will that do as an explanation without me going into any more detail? Are you kidding money? me? Yeah, just throw no, it in no. power card. Yeah, no. I, yeah. That's, you need not say more. Yeah, well, there you go. So... So he was uh, a lot of this stuff is I, I was looking for a particular uh, actually I was looking for a rewritable disc uh, and uh, and I came across some of those uh, some floppies and I thought what am I going to do with these I can't throw them away because there's data on them but there's no place that I can <laughs> maybe somebody in a junk shop or something you know I mean it's it, the um, the way of preserving information has changed so radically so quickly that all I have to do is look at 30 seconds of any X-File episode and I can tell you what year it's from. Yep. Because that's they're good, always using their phones and their flashlights and their phones and flashlights change with the changing times rapidly. I never thought about that, but I know exactly what you, I'm a huge X-Files fan. That well, not, from now on, you will not be able to watch an episode. I have just apparently no, I, laid one on you because I, I, I get it. I, I I know. I know. Have you? Are, are you a fan of Fringe? By the way, no. You haven't seen. I'm a, fr- I'm a Fringe person, but no. I'm you have to see Fringe. By the way, the second season, the first couple episodes, star Meghan Markle. Oh. That's yeah, interesting. It gets weird. And uh one of the one of the one of the episodes has a scene that climaxes in front of my apartment. Like this it, they don't actually film it here, but I'll tell you off the air where it is and stuff like that just to kind of maintain some anonymity, but yeah. Um that's that's something it's a great show. You're only four people removed from royalty. That's so impressive. <laughs> Unless it's the Kevin Bacon thing, you know. I mean, 
It's better than the Kevin Spacey thing, I'll tell you that. Well, that's another matter. But uh, Bing, <laughs> synchronicity. Guess what I was watching last night? Not K-Pax or something, what? No, but I mentioned K-Pax. Bing, another Bing. Okay. Uh, I, was, I, I was sitting with my lady friend, uh, yeah. and we were periodically – I've been showing her film noir stuff, and I wanted to show her more recent film noir style movies. So, yeah, so was that Unusual Suspects? No, L.A. Confidential. Oh, you mean literally. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and I was telling her it's really a shame about uh, about Kevin Spacey not because she was saying what great acting. There were so many great actors in that. And I said, yeah, it's a great movie, but you won't be seeing anything new with Kevin Spacey. And as it turned out, she had, like me, watched every episode of... Uh, uh, the, the the TV series with Robin Wright, whatever it was called, the, the presidential thing. Just oh uh, yeah, uh, House of Cards. Yeah, House of Cards. Really well done, and I'm sorry to see him go. And, did you uh, see that thing that they did when he was like trying to send a coded message to Hollywood? Where did, seen, was, did you see that? I saw every yeah. No, I mean, like, after he was in trouble off the show and he, was, he came on pretending to be Frank Underwood, like, Kevin Spacey himself did this weird thing online. Like, oh, after, I No, I didn't know about that. Yeah, he basically came on and was just like, I know that you thought that I would just go quietly. I don't know. Like, he was, he was making this really weird coded threat in the character of Frank Underwood. He was, like, playing the character of Frank Underwood, but he was addressing the stuff that was happening to him it's real intense um, you would love yeah, it it's a it's a very debatable thing whether you know it's like i am as anti-fascist as you get but i think ezra pound was a great poet the fact that he was a fascist doesn't keep him from being a great poet they're they're separate things but that's a whole different program yeah just because program where we're afraid to talk about anything i started to tell you what madame Blavatsky said when she detected that uh, pb randolph had died but i can't tell you because it's it's a word that you don't use anymore and oh she used the n-word yes she did ah the n-word is dead oh really that's at the moment he was shot so because the theosophists and the hbfl were 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 rival organizations although the theosophical society was much much larger and and prudish uh, but yes she did well that's that's a whole because like it I, I have written down here that obviously if he died in july of 1875 that's the same year i have here blavatsky and alcott uh hermetic brotherhood of light births of crowley gurdjieff and young so was that when yep. they, they weren't they expelled like three years later in 1878 uh who was expelled from which? Levatsky and Olcott from the um, from the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light or something like I don't know. No, I'm, they were they were expelled considerably earlier than that, and then oh. that was during her Egyptian period, and she was doing trans mediumship in Egypt and um, um, uh, hanging out with the same people that were in the the HVFL, and she was a member of the HVFL. I think Colonel Olcott was as well. Uh, well, that rhymed. Um, and uh, and they they fell afoul of I don't know Max Theon or whoever was uh, able to expel people and they were thrown out of the HBFL 
because I think they were considered to be doing a con game or whatever. And from then on, they were mortal enemies. She went to India, and the rest, as they say, is Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad. Um, so well, do you have any... it's, it's true. I mean, if it were not for the Theosophical Society moving from Egypt to India, uh, there probably would not be an independent India because uh, basically the Theosophists were the first people to advocate for um, for the independence of India, and it became an influence on uh, Indian intellectuals at the time. And of course, for a Russian lady to be proclaiming that Indians were cool and advanced and so forth was a very attractive thing because the British did not treat them that way right. uh, or anybody else in the empire. But uh, I kind of wish she'd stayed in Egypt because I'm always glad to see Egypt not doing so well because they're such a modern Egypt is such a, such a mess. Compared to what have we have in our minds of what it could have been or what used to be. Absolutely. Well, I don't know what, I have two things that I can say about politics. Egypt had an election and they elected the Muslim Brotherhood and the military said, no, 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 no. End of democracy, end of the Arab Spring. Took a year, but hardly, hardly did any good. And my, uh, my advertisement for one Ireland, okay, are you ready for this? I used to go up on Arabia Mountain on St. Paddy's Day and uh, I probably can't tell you the rest of it, but it involved a helium balloon and a CB radio. <laughs> but I would, I, I would do a lot of singing of, of songs that were probably not perfectly legal. And then I'd say, good night, good night from the Atlanta branch of the IRA, up the Republic, down the Brits. Anyway, <laughs> England, England is a wonderful country for the English and they should stay there. But England is the only country that would give Hong Kong to the authoritarian regime in China and keep Northern Ireland as part of Britain. (laughs) (laughs) You would know other like dark journalists, by the way, the uh, material. He talks about, yeah. um, I believe, Emma Harding, and um, I think it was she, she was one of the people who advocated for Irish home rule. Yeah, the the thing is, the 19th century occult movement, if you want to call it that, the spiritualist movement is actually a better title for it then, but that's what, that's what occultism was in the 19th century, overlapped in a way that it doesn't now into into the politics of the time, and I mean the radical politics of the time. Yeah. Most of the most of the occultists were also socialists. Most of the occultists were radically feminist, and it was a predominantly woman's movement, unlike the movement today, which is seven-eighth men, uh, mainly because they chase women off with every woman. I used to, when I was a lodge master, I would instruct people before the uh, ceremony known to the antique Templar community group incorporated LTD um, (laughs) that uh, hey guys wouldn't you like there to be more women in the group they nod you know like (laughs) I said well stop the minute they come in it's a big step to come into this particular environment 
stop hitting on them before they even get into the temple. Yeah. And they'd go, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and of course, the first woman that walks through the door, they're, you know, all over. And so it became like science fiction fandom in the 1960s. A bunch of guys with one girl in the room and uh, her either leaving or lapping up the attention. It's just, uh, but it was the opposite in the 19th century. And it was a very political movement. I mean, being a suffragette was a major, 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 major issue in the, in the, late 19th century and uh, had affinities for the abolitionist movement, uh, for what was then described as a socialist movement, blah, 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 which is nothing like what idiots today are, are calling uh, socialism. Uh, oh, it's yeah. just, uh, I mean, it, it just, it was a totally much better informed group. There is an argument that goes that we live in a, uh, declining society sliding into a dark age and i'm not so sure that that's not true but i won't live to see it and neither will you that's the good news <laughs> the bad news is uh we don't have to have a comet hit the earth for civilization to end uh it may end in idiocracy and so be it a great movie by the way because uh you know yeah. Bra brondo is what plants love uh Hi, and um, I hope you're enjoying the show. You'll notice I might not have edited out uh, anything that I said that I might. Not really. my Anything that uh, might have been, like, asked of, like, you know, anyone else involved. Like, I, I have edited anything else like that. But anything that I said, just like, meh. You know? Um, I'm going to make it. Uh, smake it. I'm going to make it clear that... Um, I'm pretty uh, all-inclusive. Um, basically, when it comes to any kind of magical tradition, like, I think there's a... It's almost like a grand cosmic play going on, and everyone has their part to play, or a role to play, or something to that effect. And, you know, I think it's um, where I come from. It's about unification, and... Um, of a myriad of self-actualized individuals and I think I get on board with a lot of the philosophy of a lot of different refined bodies so I just want to say that like um yeah respect to anyone who's actually on the path and uh I think those who are listening to this who are hearing this understand exactly what I'm saying which is probably you if you're listening to this <laughs> One of those. <laughs> so, I hope I have um, got the uh, audience interested in sticking with us a little bit longer here. And uh, with that, we are going to get back to Jepasheda. I don't say the lightning struck tower for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well with you living there who knows you know you might be the um what they call a strange attractor uh, <laughs> not likely i have met a couple of people i went to high school with though so apparently they never left the neighborhood hmm. yeah that's um i can imagine that's almost like a um a, 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 what's the word i'm a surrealistic norman rockwell 
I can't imagine a surrealistic. I have a vivid imagination, but uh, Norman. Do you have any thoughts on Hunter S. Thompson? He's dead. He's dead. Okay. <laughs> he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he gone, but his movies linger on. Um, I, I read all of his books. Yeah. I was sorry that he offed himself. I don't think that Madame Blavatsky killed him. Oh my God! <laughs> I, don't think it, I don't think there was any. All stories are related, my son. All stories are related. And the story of his death does not sound suspicious to us at all. It sounds exactly no, no, nobody, nobody bothered to question it because he was always playing with guns and playing with death and. He finally succeeded. Yeah. Like I said, it's the least suspicious death <laughs> in, in uh, something or other. Well, he now, if he was found on. hanged in a closet like... Um, Kill Bill. <laughs> yeah. Kill yeah, Bill. Um, Bill. What's his name? Um, Carradine. Thank you. Yes. David Carradine. Son of John Carradine, brother of uh, uh, Keith Carradine, and some other Carradine, another brother that hasn't really made it that big. But David Carradine was doing that thing that uh, that artist for heavy metal was doing, that self-asphyxiation masturbation thing, and apparently didn't pull the right rope at the right time, which is really not something you should do because... I don't know what they do when they really you, but I do know that I'm not thinking about pulling a rope at that time. You know? <laughs> it sounds good too complicated. Good sex yeah. magic is not done thinking. It's done without thinking. That's the important thing. <laughs> That's it. kind of one of the most important aspects of it, yeah. That segues right back to Wilhelm Reich, Oregon Energy, and... My voice is back. Aha. Tea is a wonderful thing. I hear that. I'm drinking okay. coffee, of course. Well, I ordinarily drink coffee, and then I get too talkative, but the tea is to mellow me out. This is my mellowed-out version. <laughs> Usually I drink coffee till about 5 o'clock, and then I switch to water. <laughs> I'm a night oh, hawking night diner. Yeah, well, I'm a Nighthawk, and I don't. I, I start to want to go to sleep around two, but then I binge watch something, or I get a a bee under my bonnet, whatever that means, and uh, uh, I go to the computer and I compose something mysterious that will tweak the universe. And then I tweak the universe. Then I go back to watching TV until five in the morning. Then I put. Yeah, I turn on Netflix or something at about three a.m. And depending on how good the show is, very recently I, put, I started putting on American Gods. That's spoilers. It's a Neil Gaiman thing, right? Interesting to like. Not a good thing to fall asleep to because it's too damn interesting. It's a damn good show. Uh, I have this strange aversion to superheroes, and I'll tell you why. You want to hear why? Yes. Sure you do. Because uh, I 
was a big fan of science fiction comics. And there was one that was very innovative called Amazing Adult Fantasy. Now, the word adult did not mean back then what <laughs> it has come to me. It just meant that it was what comic books have become, something that uh, an adult can read without, you know. Anyway, so the last I subscribed to it, which was a rarity, and the last issue of it, the last thing in it was the first story of Spider-Man. And from then on, Marvel did nothing but superhero stuff and the science fiction stuff was gone. So I, I, it's like uh, I can, uh, uh, I, I guess it's a deep primal resentment that I have been, my primary interest has been replaced by people in tights. <laughs> I've, I sense there's some kind of like Freudian thing there, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Don't put your finger on it, for God's sake. Exactly. <laughs> um, never mention Freudian thing and putting your finger on it. That's, oh, that's a cigar that's is name. never just a cigar. I don't care what Freud said. That's how I get by in my life. Uh, anyways. Yeah, and I'm very influenced by the song, There Ain't No Such Thing as a Superman by Gil Scott Heron. May he rest in peace. Rest in well, peace. My personal opinion is that Freudian psychology tells us a lot about Freud. Yep. But not about humanity in general. There's a great. <laughs> no, he, he used his patient base, and his patient base were upper class Austrian Jewish women from Vienna. It works for me, but then I'm the son of Austrian Jewish women from, <laughs> from Vienna. So I mean, my father was uh, his his father was from Vienna. It was a brewmeister there who opened up a. A saloon in a really red light district in Baltimore. And my mother was from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Too. Well, she wasn't. I mean, her her mother was, you know, her parents were. And they came over here in the like early 1890s. And you don't want to hear this. You want to hear about sex magic and orgone energy. Well, I think that's still pretty interesting. I'll, I'll add this before we pivot to that and uh, Kate Bush's inspiration for cloud busting. But um, there's a great comic called The Invisibles, and if you're ever different, different. I've read I've read The Invisibles. That's uh, Grant, right? I, yeah. Uh, the the issue that uh, that that does Bertio stuff um, is the best. Uh, first level look at instead of sending people to Bertio's books I send them to that issue of the invisibles in fact I have made disreputable scans of that entire issue don't tell the uh, author or publisher no that's that's an exception to the rule but I mean in general it's like uh, my eldest son who's a, a screenwriter uh, he um, got me to read Arkham Asylum the you know during the gothic batman period and i was impressed by it but i'm not moved to go back to reading what i read i guess it's it may be that i associate that with being a kid you know also i had a friend who incessantly said oh comics are different now comics are different now comics and every time i saw them during that period 
they weren't any different. They were the same, and there was nothing wrong with it. But it was, uh, I don't like being pushed. So, you know. And then suddenly there were many, 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 many movies. And uh, yeah, um, it's not like uh, I've never seen one that I liked Wonder Woman. <laughs> Wonder Woman. The movie. It was strictly the movie. It was not. The broad, uh, the woman of <laughs> the comic book was terrible. Pro, prodigious womanness. <laughs> Please cut this out. I'll pay you. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I don't want to be me threed, you know. Greenfield disappeared. <laughs> I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't lose it. You only right. have to endure this as long as I'm here and echoing in your mind, 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 mind. Oh God, he's mine. taking control. Help! Really, you? Okay. Uh, Rake was um, he was Jewish himself, and they basically put him in prison at the end. I think. Not to jump ahead in the story. Uh, you really have jumped ahead in the story. Who who was Jewish? Reich was Jewish. But who in psychiatry other than Jung was not Jewish? <laughs> I mean, it, it's true that Freud actually said uh, to Adler or one of his buddies, thank God we've got a non-Jew interested in this. I was afraid it was going to be just just a, a bunch of Jews sitting around analyzing and analyzing like we've been doing since ancient times. Joseph in the Bible was a, was a dream reader. Boy. Isn't uh, isn't something about Judaism? Doesn't that basically mean God wrestler or he who wrestles with God, or is that Israel? Or it's, Israel was the name that was given to Jacob after he wrestled with a man all night long, translated into angel. Uh, why I don't know. The Hebrew word is uh, the same as the beverage mezcal, which means uh, messenger. Huh. Doesn't mean angel. I don't know, you know, how that translation happens. But like I said, translation screws up. What I started to do was quote Robert Graves from memory, so I may be getting it wrong. But he said, "Translation is a lie. A good translation is a polite lie, but <laughs> it's still a lie." I like that. Yeah, me too. Enough to, that I memorized it. Yeah. I memorized Jabberwock by Lewis Carroll. That's what I got. Jabberwock. Well, speaking of the of 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 sex magic and Freud and and orgon energy and cloudbusters, were we? <laughs> <laughs> Should we? Yes. Let us. Uh, let us further. I I think, and this is. <laughs> Uh, Reich was not a mystic. He was a, he fancied what he was discovering was a new energy. I think he was right. I think he was touching on what is now called dark energy. Mm. And I think Reichian energy is dark energy, but he considered it to be orgasmic energy. Orgasmic energy in the sense that the universe is one big orgasm think of the big bang as yep really and that <laughs> if you harness that in a sexual act by 
uh, orgasming and concentrating on performing a magical deed, the magical deed will be much more energized because you have, to use Crowley's term, energized enthusiasm. Yeah. And I, I, I think that essentially all magical energy, all paranormal energy is, in fact, dark energy. But it's been called different things at different times. In the East, it's called chi or ki and prana, uh, bindu sometimes. Uh, but in the West, it's uh, been called uh, uh, orgon. The odic force was one of the things that was called in the 19th century by a guy named von Reichenbach. Um, you can probably find a little YouTube video that I did on that that has had like 60,000 hits over wow. over time. It's it's uh, what is it called? Uh, I forget. But look on you know YouTube, Alan Greenfield. It's there somewhere, and it's I must say it's the most popular thing I have, except the uh, the bootleg of uh, Roots of Magic. That's also 50,000 hits on somebody else's site. It's Bums me out, man. If I sold 50,000 books, do you think I'd be living in the lightning struck tower? <laughs> oh, no. This place is subsidized because I'm poor because I've always believed in the work instead of in the money. That was my daddy's deal, the money, not the work. Or, But he was a good guy. Roosevelt, Democrat, great guy. Which uh, which Roosevelt the uh, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt he was my father was uh, influenced by the depression he was a thirty two degree Freemason I believe Scottish right FDR my father no FDR oh FDR was yeah yeah well you know there's a, there's a there's a trick in there uh, I don't know that it's universal but because I've heard that it's not but it's very common for people to join a blue lodge, do the three primary degrees, and then go straight to 32nd because 32nd in, until very recently made you eligible to join the shrine, which was the object of that particular doctrine. Now the shrine will take any Freemason, so. Yep. I actually saw a shriner. This was kind of weird because like, it was in kind of one of the back roads by my house. Which is like the middle of nowhere, but where two mm -hmm. roads meet. There's a Shriner out there, like hanging out at the crossroads, Fez and everything. And like, I was like, anyway. Well, the Moorish science people, who a lot of them are affiliated with uh, free Illuminism, are also wear Fezes. I don't know anybody else that wears a Fez these days. <clears throat> The Arabs stopped wearing them because the Ottoman Empire required them to wear it. You know, so. yeah. In Freemasonry, they have the Shriners who wear the red fez, and then they have the Mystic Order of the Veiled Protectors of the Esoteric Realm, Mufer, and they wear the black shrine, uh, the black fez. Well, he was a he was a Shriner. He wore the red. Then he had the other insignias on it and stuff too. Well, speaking of sex magic. You're not, you know. Like, yes, we were, weren't we? Speaking of sex magic, uh, yeah, yeah, really well, I, I can tell you about the Shrine Temple in on Ponce de Leon in Atlanta. It's the home of the Atlanta Roller Girls. 
the best best roller derby in the whole of the U.S. of A. I'll toast Take to that. Take that home, Schreiner. Yes, sir. I was thinking about the Steely Dan song. You're not going to do it without the fez on. Uh, they don't wear fezes. They, but they do sweat a lot. That's really. Uh, they have an auditorium. It's <laughs> not. Roller derby makes me think of rollerball from the uh, what was that? The eighties. Uh, the J- James Con version, because this is a more recent version. Yeah, yeah favorite one. one of my favorite movies, The Conquest of the Corporate State. Ooh, right. What did they down. say when he was going around the track at the end, and they chanted his name, James Con, not the hero type. Maybe that was intentional. I just think of Con. No, that's his real name. Uh, his name was uh, something like Billy E or something. I don't remember. Uh, I have it on disc, but I have the newer version too, and it has the same theme, but it takes place in uh, what is that country in Siberia that owns the Cosmodrome? Not Yugoslavia. No, no, Yugoslavia doesn't exist anymore. Oh, but there are lots and lots of free Illuminist bodies in the former Yugoslavia, in Croatia and uh, uh, Serbia and Bosnia all have free Illuminist bodies. I like how this is coming full circle, like rollerball. Because my wife's Bulgarian, and I'll probably be going back there soon. So if there's not a free Illuminist body there, maybe I can... Uh, there, there is a, a mutual recognition, what we call a, a gauge of amity, amity with uh, with the Bulgarian Masonic Grand Lodge and the free and free Illuminist bodies. That makes That's a lot of sense because I noticed they're based on the rights in Memphis, Missouri. So, yeah, and if you look uh, down there, uh, as they have a habit of doing in Eastern Europe, at their list of uh, of uh certificates you'll notice one signed by me um they sent me one and i sent them one and so we recognize each other hi bulgaria (laughs) that's quite interesting (laughs) and they say hi jew don't come here You know, Bulgaria used to be part of the Byzantine Empire. That might explain your earlier, uh, the, the cave thing, uh, because uh, the, uh, Constantinople, which you can't go back to, um, was the last repository of what had been the Library of Alexandria. So when that was dispersed, um, a lot of knowledge went north a lot of it went to Russia, or what became Russia. Uh, the Third Rome, as they called the Russian Empire. Or well, they the Thracians, it. which Bulgaria is Thrace, basically, for the most part. And uh, they founded Byzantium, which is the Byz- Byzantine Empire and everything. But uh, they, found a, they found these uh, tablets and... Uh, I think the oldest one they found was in Gratisnitsa, Bulgaria, which has, they said it was decorative, but you look at it like that's not decorative. But it, they're like, 
early versions of the hi Egyptian hieroglyphs were like a more developed later version. And uh, that's probably pretty controversial or whatever, but when you look at it, you're like, okay, this means this, but then when you translate it, it makes perfect sense. So it, it adds up a lot. And then uh, then there was the Tartaria tablets on in Romania, but just the other side of the Danube. Like on mm -hmm. the Danube, I think, but it was on the north side. Uh, they found some. Well, I think Bulgaria is uh, 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 Eastern Orthodox, and Romania, I think, is Catholic, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, that is true. Yeah, but they're all vampires over but, there. But these things go back to like five, six thousand BC. So. It was that's that's really interesting and uh, that actually I've done a little exploring of that uh, that area there's a uh, allegedly a pyramid in Bosnia that is thousands of years old I mean there's there's a lot of great antiquity in that particular the southern part of Eastern Europe that uh, during the Cold War the bad old days of the Cold War you you really didn't have much access to and they but uh yeah they're uh, just finding out all about a lot of it it's really kind of changing history but you don't hear much about it because especially fields like archaeology they they progress one death at a time you know <laughs> i feel like i've yeah. heard that somewhere um now i was wondering if you have anything that you could say about atlantis speaking of ancient history do you have any thoughts on Atlantis? Uh, yeah, I, I respect people that think that that Atlantis was a continent that sunk. I just don't know where it could have been because of the the geology. However, there could have been a civilization, and this is something that I've given a lot of attention to, that was essentially a world Atlantis and Lemuria, really. In other words, I think that in prehistory, long prehistory, before the last ice age, and pretty much anything that was, you know, made it through the glacial period would have been destroyed. I think there was an advanced civilization. There's no reason to think that there could not have been, and it doesn't require extraterrestrial intervention or anything remotely resembling that because the human race had already been around for 100,000 years at minimum at, the, at that time. And while the, the numbers were, were smaller, either the uh, homo sapien is a homo sapien. That is, their, their capacity to think and is as good as ours. Whether they did, or whether they had written language, whatever, or whether they needed a written language. I mean, our criteria for assessing advanced civilization is based a lot on who built the biggest monuments to the dead, because that's the easiest thing for archaeologists to access. So if there was an advanced civilization prior to the Ice Age, um, it probably would be almost totally vanished, and the only thing you would have is the occasional relic or legend. I think the legend of Atlantis probably is a third generation, so to speak. I don't mean that in terms of time, but in terms of handed down once, handed down twice, handed down three or more times. Story of a worldwide seafaring 
uh, race of people who existed at a time when Antarctica was not under ice, who mapped it, who mapped the entire world very accurately. Uh, the, their maps seem to have survived, probably not in any form that we have, but in terms of later mapping, you know, copies of copies of copies, like the Perry Rice map, yep. which is fantastically uh, accurate, or the Orontius uh, Phineas map, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but I, Latin is not my thing. Um, it's... Um, uh, very likely that those maps, which are so accurate uh, and and emanate from the Ottoman Empire, which was the direct successor to the Eastern Roman Empire, which was a successor to the uh, Alexandrian, uh, the Empire of Alexander. So uh, we're, you know, going back pretty far in time. And not, uh, the estimate is that 90% of the known uh, texts from the ancient world, that is, we know their names, are lost. We only know their names because they were mentioned in passing and in books that, that have survived. So this, this is probably part of a very fractured tradition. I think the magical tradition uh, is fractured as well, but not quite as fractured because it's an oral tradition more so than a written tradition. I mean, they've always been written texts uh, since there's been any kind of writing. But my guess is that it goes back before the Ice Age and the last Ice Age and uh, was destroyed in some sort of catastrophic Velikovskian type event. Which one? I don't know. I mean, there, there are several good candidates. But when I first formulated that idea, it was a radical theory because at that time, uh, even uh, um, continental drift was a radical theory. Now it's orthodoxy. Um, but it's also true that uh, the, those maps, the only person to consider them was one of the guys that came up with continental drift, which was uh, uh, Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings, which I read very early on and was very influenced by. Because it essentially, the only explanation for it that makes any real sense other than ancient astronauts. Yeah. I've been on that show too. That's, you know, the hair, the hair. Um, is that, uh, that at some point in unrecorded history, if not prehistory, more likely the latter, um, there was right. a seafaring group of, of people who mapped the world. And therefore, by definition, we're a rather advanced civilization, if not more advanced than, you know, than modern civilization. And that was completely destroyed. And that matches the general outline of the story of Atlantis. So you don't so, think it's like an interdimensional kind of like it shifted between phases or something? Well, let's put it this way. Anytime you have a, um, um, a fragmented story, Somewhere along the line, if it's if it's interesting enough to be repeated and repeated and repeated orally yeah. through you know different civilizations, somewhere along the line, it's going to intermix with visits to Magonia or visits from Magonia, uh, by which I mean you know 
fairy or whatever you want to call it. The other, you know, the nearest God, Joe McCarthy's on TV. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, the likelihood of seeing Joe McCarthy, uh, at any given time, I mean, it's on MSNBC, you know, uh, the likelihood of that just after you've mentioned it, mentioned him in that era. Yeah. Are you following me? I mean, that's, that's no, just, I, I, I get it. Yeah. That's, um, it's, uh, the universe, it's the feedback. It's, it's Philip K. Dick almost. Yes, it is. And, uh, it's, uh, very impressive. I mean, it's happening now. I expected after we got off, got off the program that I, you know, watch whatever I was going to watch or open the mail and it would be, you know, something that, yeah, it coincides, but it didn't wait. Just, just happened. Um, I don't even know where I was. I, oh, I well, anyway, you. that's. I think that there is a an intertwining of magical history and um, conventional. Um, I don't know what to call it. Anti-history, uh, proto-history, whatever that uh, they're, they're not quite the same thing, but there are, there's a melding of memories. One is of encounters with other dimensions. The other is an actual physical uh, civilization that existed before ours. And the two got melded into one, which is actually the, the experience of most of history. I mean, that's just, just the way history is. Um, yeah. I, I started off one of my books by saying history is a dark pit. And um, people that have said, no, we really know, you know, between uh, historical research and archaeology, we have a pretty good picture of, say, Egypt. I said, no, we don't. No, we don't. We, don't. we, have, we have a really uh, spotty thing. If, if, the universe of ancient Egypt hadn't been so offended by Akhenaten so that after he died, they literally struck his name from everything they could find it on. Of course, they missed some places and turned his city at Cotton upside down and made his son change his name from uh, Akhenaten to Tutankhamun. And, uh, um, if it had not been done, we would never have known about it because the irony is they did such a thorough job. They literally turned the city upside down into the preserving sands of Egypt so that all that had to really happen was some dolt in the 19th century stumbled on a rock and the rock turned out to be one of the walls of uh, Agnaton, the city of Agnaton. And uh, we know, therefore, having dug it up, and there were extensive records there and uh, of the whole Middle East, actually, because it was a golden period in, uh, in, in ancient times in terms of communication between nations and trade and so forth. We wouldn't know about that. So maybe there are other things that weren't so, you know, recklessly destroyed. I mean, Ramesses II, the great, great because he lived to be 80 some odd years old. I think that's the only thing that was really great about him. Um, 
he took the memory of other pharaohs, had his cartouche carved over theirs repeatedly, and he was a relatively light. He was light middle kingdom, I think. And uh, uh, those things suggest that just as you can find modern histories that totally disagree on what happened in the Vietnam War, and that's in living memory, um, things that are beyond living memory, we're only seeing whatever has survived. You know, I mean, we have soldier accounts of the Civil War, but they conflict with one another. You know, even in the same battle, they conflict with one another. So yeah. go back 4,000 years and tell me you have an accurate picture from what has survived from that period. No, Because it doesn't tell you by definition what hasn't survived. I by definition. It doesn't fit their narrative, too, so that doesn't help. Yeah, well, the, the narrative should never be propaganda. That isn't science. That's propaganda. Let me ask it's you this the, quickly, because, like, um, speaking of stories, and we talked about old masculine orders, and I was thinking about the Flintstones and how they had the royal, what was it, the, the order of the buffalo, the water buffalo? Yep. Because we were talking about cartoons earlier, and I was wondering if you ever noticed how Betty and Barney Rubble had the same names as Betty and Barney Hill? Um, I never even thought of the connection there, but that that is very interesting. Oh, Betty Hill was at that convention that I mentioned that Fate Magazine put The on Fate Magazine time. one? Okay. The one yeah. where uh, Margaret Mead got chased after and disappeared like a men in black. Yeah, I mean, our largest convention, the National UFO Conference, or the Congress of Scientific Ufologists, as it was first called, um, the largest we had was 1967, which was the one that 10,000 people came to and Jim Mosley put on. It cost him $12,000, which wow. was a lot of Big Moolah, Big Moolah for that year. That was the year of the first Pink Floyd album. And of course, Pink Floyd was famous for playing at that time at the UFO Club. Yeah, and that was the Summer of Love. I mean, it was in June of 1967. And the Love candidate for president, uh, Louis Abelafia, was there. And I mean, it was kind of, you know, the... A crux of the counterculture of that period, as well as the usual people that showed up. Hell, Dr. Condon was there. I mean, you know, he was the head of the Air Force contract uh, um, a, a, a review of the evidence for UFOs. Um, and uh, oh, the amazing Randy did a, a oh, geez. thing there. That guy. Um, no, he was he was much more open back then. I did a radio program with him. He took over Long John Nebel's show when Nebel huh. moved to WNBC on WOR, and I did that show with Tim Beckley and the late Joan Reitner and a couple other people. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Cohen from Science Digest. And he was pro-UFO in those days, but he was anti... Uh, uh, he claimed to have explanations for things like psychic photography. And so I said, okay, Randy, uh, what's the explanation for Ted Serios? I said, people have stood around him and watched. He said, well, let me show you. So we went up to, I think it was Gene Steinberg's room, and he 
did this little thing. And he said, see, this is what Sirius is doing. And you know who Ted Sirius was, right? He was I, a thought photography guy. He had to get drunk, and then he they'd take a picture. And he'd hold up a piece of cardboard and look through the cardboard and would project onto the film. Uh, I guess it was usually Polaroid film. Whatever, you know, whatever came into his mind. Wow. They were... And uh, uh, Randy claimed he could duplicate that. And I watched him. And he, keep in mind, this guy was a rather good, in his day, professional magician. Actually, he was more an escape artist. But he, he did sleight of hand real well. I mean, one time I had dinner with him, and he made a salt shaker disappear from the table. That's impressive. Huh. I know what he did, but I couldn't see him do it. Yeah. But in the case of, get this, this is 100% true. Randy is still living, I believe, and uh, yeah. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not distorting this at all. I mean, we spent some time together during the convention, and uh, there was a lot. And I had gone up weeks in advance to help, you know, set up and so forth. Um, uh, so Randy does this thing, and I already intuited what he was doing. He was palming some little flashlight thing, probably one of those. You know, souvenir of Florida, and you look through it, and there's a girl in a bathing suit and this little <laughs> plastic thingamajig that you squeeze, and it, the, the, uh, a bulb comes on until it yeah. runs out two months later. So I thought that's what he was doing. So I said, do it again. He said, okay. The second time he did it, I saw him do it. And I said, Randy, this is what you're doing. And I deliberately said it in front of the other people that were there. They didn't see it, but I did. I said, yeah. Okay, how can that be an explanation? People, including you know, uh, scientists and professional uh, people whose job it is to observe things, have stood around Ted Sirius doing his thing endlessly, and nobody has spotted him doing what you just did. I spotted you the second time out, yeah. standing as close to you as, as they were standing to Sirius. So he doesn't have anything to say to that. The next morning on the Today Show on NBC, he said, I'm going to explain what Ted Sirios does to, for this photography. And he does the same trick. The next day, the day after, I have basically shown that that can't possibly be the explanation for what, what Sirios was actually doing because somebody would have spotted it. I'm not, you know, some kind of, I mean, I, I've seen Siegfried and Roy back when they were Siegfried and Roy. And, yeah. You know, and I've, for that matter, I've seen Pink Floyd do some really fantastic effects on stage. And I know oh, how it's done well, now, but I didn't know then. And I was, oh, gosh, gosh, how they're doing I'm that. I'm jealous. I that's my favorite band is Pink Floyd. I'm actually mm. seeing Nick Mason uh, in April. Well, you know, it's a long time coming. But uh, they... Uh, yeah. They came, th all the big, big bands, the big bands probably too, but that was earlier. Uh, the, uh, the famous groups came through Atlanta and a lot of them before they were famous, there was a little club called the Agora Ballroom. And I saw, uh, let's see, I saw the clash there. And I mean, this was up close and personal. I saw That's the police cool. there. Uh, oh man. Uh, uh, I saw, um, John Mellencamp, when he was still John Cougar and selling his own albums, it was way before he, you know. Uh, so, you know, that was uh, uh, everybody but the Sex Pistols. They came through Atlanta and that was the end of their career. 
<laughs> you don't do America uh, the way you do England. It's just not the same gig. But uh, it was, it was, you know, um, I, I, I saw pretty much everything. I saw Cream. Um, uh, that was uh, Eric Clapton's band of that period. Yeah, Eric Clapton, uh, Jeff, Ginger Baker. Yeah, Ginger Baker. Yeah, Dave Mason was too. Right? No, never mind. I guess Moody Blues. Uh, we have. Uh, we're running on about like almost four hours and fifteen minutes. But I, I have pearls of wisdom waiting for you to ask the right question. What would that question be? Uh, I'm not supposed to ask the questions. That would be on my podcast, which I don't have and won't have because I have no technical abilities whatsoever. I know how to turn on a computer. Do you, um, do you know, would there really? I'm kidding. I'm kidding you. We've, we've, you know, edit this down if you want to, or do it. No, no. Um, I think that Jake does have one question and then I'm going to have, I'm going to follow it up with another one, but then I, I think it would be, and obviously I, I think both of us want to talk with you again. It's just like yeah. for this one for this one go through, you know. I think that uh, four hours and a half might be a good place to cap it. But uh, Jake wants to ask you something about Jake. What is the point? Go ahead. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it has to do with the Mushroom uh, Memphis Mushroom, the the points child system. Uh, point shard. Actually, uh, it's Pui shard, according to my. Uh, one of my associates who is a linguist, but that's the, I, I, I say point shard because this is Atlanta. This is not Port-au-Prince, you know, so. This is America. America, America, America first, America last, America in decline. Oh, beautiful. I didn't mean in decline. I meant, uh, make America, uh, white again i know i don't mean that that's that would be awful i don't like white people uh, it doesn't matter what i'm trying to say here is really you uh so you were asking about the point shots um Bertio, um uh developed the system out of haitian voodoo and but as he as he said to me, you don't really think that a system as broad as this is confined to an island in the Caribbean. So I think that he, he's correct about that. And you see that his interests are, are very broad. He broadened them out. And uh, as, as it has come down to us, he has a system of activating these points, not unlike acupuncture meridians, but with the, uh, with the intent of, uh, activating uh, spiritual powers in a person as opposed to uh, just healing. Well, I don't think just is correct there. Uh, acupuncture is for healing and the points are derived from uh, concerns about healing various parts of the body or the or the uh, etheric body or, you know, whatever you, however you, however it works, it works real well. I've had acupuncture done. It's very impressive. I can do it myself, uh, do a little bit with it, but I'm not, you know, a, a, pra a professional practitioner. Um, the point shod, as he was using it, was primarily to activate the loa, the 
um, gods of the voodoo system or the demigods or whatever they yeah. the, the, uh, the loa or however you say it loa okay um as it, as it came to me i was at the point of working out how to modernize the system of the um uh, Memphis Mitzrayim masonry, which is respect uh, respect in the separate systems, 90 degrees and 97 degrees. And uh, acupuncture has the in its ancient system has 360 degrees. Well, that's an obvious corollary to 360 degrees, particularly if you take the word degree from its origin, which is the greatest grades or steps, and of course. There are 360 degrees in a circle. There's uh, degrees are the way you you measure advancements in uh, uh, traditional magical practices and uh, also in Masonic lore and so forth. So I tried to apply the idea of Bouichard, Point Shard, to uh, the rites of Memphis and Mitzrayim. I wasn't content to do it on my own, so I had a back and forth with uh, Michael Berdio uh, on on that subject. And uh, the the work that I was developing, which if my Earthlink site ever comes back up, is there. But if you have a copy of The Complete Right of Memphis, which by the way, um, I no longer have any kind of royalties from, so I'm not plugging it except as a, um, you know something that is of interest the revised edition has an appendix which Bertio wanted the whole book to be which was not the traditional uh ceremonies for the 97 degrees but how to do them as a system of points on the human body that can be activated and i believe that those 90 points and seven uh administrative points are um similar to acupuncture, but for, as I said, spiritual development or uh, to bring out uh, spiritual beings or to bring out, uh, uh, to open your third eye, essentially. Um, They are hard to contain. So I have developed various strategies to essentially treat it like a nuclear, the the control rods in a nuclear reactor. Uh, You don't, you don't do it without proper um, uh, preparation. Uh, otherwise, you'll have uh, it'll go nuclear essentially. Uh, a so, meltdown. And, uh, yeah, and and we had some very very tragic things happen in the early days, and I stopped doing it for ten years uh, until I figured out a safe way to do it, and I, uh, since then I've been giving those points. I, I'm not doing it now, but I now have a bunch of people that have all the points and have the means of, of uh, transferring the egregore uh, from themselves to the person first so that they have the proper containment to receive all of the points. Anybody can get four or five of them and I sometimes use the trick, well, how do you know these points exist? Here, and I'll give them three or four points that are guaranteed to uh, energize their enthusiasm and it's <laughs> it's universally convincing we'll put it that way that's amazing know, that yeah, sounds it, a lot like reiki transmission in a way 
Um, it's been compared to Reiki also, but Reiki, like acupuncture, is for healing. So it concentrates on, on places that, when activated, uh, give healing energy, whereas, as I said, the, the point shot are concerned with um, uh, enlightenment, and the, the points that are activated are... Uh, correspond to the degrees in the Memphis system. But because the Memphis system seems to be derived from uh, very ancient sources, hence the name, uh, Memphis, as in the city in Egypt, not the city in, not where Elvis is buried, allegedly. Right. Um, not about Elvis? Uh, <laughs> that's the other Memphis. This is the original Memphis. Or Misraim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. It right. actually may be uh, distantly related to the English word misery, because to the Hebrews, probably Egypt and misery were closely intertwined, I think, in classical Egyptian lore. Let my people it, go. Uh, yeah, exactly. The Pentateuch. Would you, um, I, this kind of transitions into the have last Have I post. answered the point? Have I answered the point? But, uh, I mean, uh, oh, you totally did. That was awesome. By it, the it's way. really something that the only way to illustrate it is to show it to you or do it. So y'all come on down. You hear? I'm going to have to make a sojourning trip down to meet Jake. And then the two of us are going to have to go down there. That's I'm yeah. really like, that's amazing. I can't it totally piqued my interest. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I guess the last question I have for just for now, because we should definitely do this again. I'm, I could even see it being like a midnight matinee thing, or whatever the uh, the the other term we had earlier. Um, I wanted to ask you about the ultra. So it's kind of like a three part question here. Maybe you could just say a little bit about the Dog Star series. Maybe a little bit final points on the White Brotherhoods, and maybe how we can utilize that in our lives. And the last part of the question is maybe talk a little bit about the ultra-terrestrial origins of masonry. Ah, actually, that idea I will credit to Bertio, not to me. And then once I saw it, I thought, wow, yeah, that fits. That fits very well. Um, Bertio said in the Vodon Gnostic workbook, I think his magnum opus, in my opinion, um, that... Uh, he put it very strangely, and I can't quote it exactly, but paraphrasing it slightly, he said, oddly enough, the secret of the UFOs is hidden, believe it or not, in an obscure rite of Freemasonry known as Memphis Mitzrayim. And the degrees to uh, segue into the to another part of your question in uh, in classical rite of memphis work first of all it's suspicious or suspicious may be the wrong word interesting that it's 90 degree it's a 90 degree system because it probably originates in ancient uh, sumer and migrated to Assyria, migrated then to Babylon, and then spreading out from there, probably through Phoenicia into Europe and so forth. Um, the base system in, in 
those really ancient Middle Eastern societies was base 60, not base 10 like uh, I think our system of math is, it's base 60. 60 and 90 have a certain affinity and 90 of course is one-fourth of a 360 degree system which is precisely what uh, according to legend and according to a certain logic the entire system consists of so we have only a fragment of a 360 degree system and i offer a lot of evidence of that uh, in the um, appendix to the book along with the the traditional rituals that are associated with it one of the degrees that uh, the last recension done by Yar uh, john yarker um substitutes uh i think it's the sublime kawi agree uh, degree for one that originally was called knight of syria and the the sign for the knight of sirius is essentially uh with the index finger of your right hand pointing to the heavens in the east and saying sirius and the response is supposed to be sophist another name for sirius and also the name for an egyptian deity um it seems to me that the secrets of of uh, visitors from Sirius are bound up with uh, the, the the mythology of ancient Sumer, the Oannes, uh, the, the, the the god John, as it would be called, the later legends of John the Baptist, the late, the still later legends of the um, amphibious beings that are tutelary deities of uh, the human race, and uh, uh, beneficent in that in that sense and that manifest and that I uh, uh, experimentally show how to manifest it if you have been schooled enough in magic to know how to get rid of it once you manifest it um, uh, Kenneth Grant uh, that's in uh, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black if I remember correctly yeah but the mirror um, in the field right uh, that's that's uh, Grant's version of it. The the mass of the mirror is a little more complicated, and you need a, a very willing acolyte to be able to do that. But the um, the chapter where I use the the cipher to substitute the names for the um, um, the, the headless one ritual inaccurately translated the bornless one the ritual. Bornless, right? Yeah, a headless because. Uh, the, the depictions of the um, amphibious being that taught the Sumerians uh, language and agriculture and art and religion and science and mystery um, would be headless in the human sense. So it's uh, the earliest uh, version of that is in Greek and translates into the headless one ritual which the golden dawn took and made bornless one and then uh, uh i think crowley took it and made liber samic which incorporates some of his darker ideas in it finally um before my voice goes completely <laughs> gargle gargle i will 
I will get to, I, I started to talk about this before, but got distracted because that happens, happens to people. It's a sign of maturity to have your <laughs> mind wander. What was I talking about? Oh, yes. Well, okay. You wanted to know about the, the connection between the, the white lodge or brotherhood or uh, association or whatever. And um, what the, uh, what kind of relationship it has to the, the occult world. Think about, um, if you're familiar with the concept of the Bodhisattva in, in Buddhism, uh, if you're not, I'll give you the briefest possible uh, uh, definition and uh, it will do for this purpose. I'm familiar, uh, goal, but definitely do so for the audience who might not. Okay. The concept of Buddhism is not uh, deistic as most religions are. It really doesn't have a deity, or if it versions that have deities, they are essentially as imprisoned by uh, material reality as the rest of us are. They're just longer-lived and more powerful. Um, the goal of Buddhism is to attain this state that is called Nibbana in Pali or Nirvana in Sanskrit, and which doesn't have a real translation into English. So it's just called Nirvana. It doesn't mean taking a shotgun and blowing your head off. That's a, that's a, mis, uh, a misapprehension from, uh, the, from the grunge movement. And Forever 27 that. returns. Yes, but, 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 the, um, the nature of becoming in Buddhism is to become a Buddha, to become at one with the universe while uh, no, longer, uh, no longer possessing existence. Now, you could say that's the same thing as dead, but it's not. It's... Uh, it's a state of being that doesn't involve either dead or not dead. And there are a lot of those, those uh, in the Buddhist literature, there are lots of comments that says neither this nor that, neither soul nor no soul, neither gods nor no gods. So if a person um, attains to Buddhahood, then they can go into nirvana, and many do, um, actually, many don't attain. That's one of the criticisms of Buddhism. Many, many monks, few Buddhas is the expression from Buddhism, from Zen, actually. Um, or one can choose to make the ultimate sacrifice of remaining semi-incarnate as a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is an enlightened being that hasn't gone on as they're entitled to do to Buddhahood, but rather has chosen to remain as a as a helper to the uh, to the human race and vows never to become a Buddha until all sentient beings have become eligible to be Buddhas. The White Lodge is simply the Western version of that same concept. Of course. People, people who have evolved to the point that they are transcendent, they may not even be bodily anymore, or they may be. I mean, they can be both because it's a matter of choice, but they are sometimes called the secret chiefs of the third order. 
They're sometimes called the inner order. They're sometimes called the, the Great White Brotherhood. They're sometimes called the the White Lodge. They're sometimes uh, lots of names for the same thing. The Nine Unknown is another one. I mean, it's um, in in Judaism, especially in Kabbalistic Judaism, there is the Lamed Vavniks, which is um, the the 35 people for which the 35 righteous people according to legend, for which God doesn't destroy the world because there are at least 35 righteous people. It's all basically the same concept. The ascended masters are our helpers. They're what keep the darker forces from other planes of existence, we can use that term, inadequate though it is, from destroying us. They also periodically offer help to individuals it's a, it's a matter of calling and there are various claimants to people who have a magical link to these uh, um, secret chiefs and the proof of the pudding is in the eating which is do the people who claim such exhibit those signs of uh, um, benign and knowledgeable purpose that uh, they can be credited with being that. Am I explaining it fairly well? I, I think, um, I think so. I, I would, I would just ask this to, uh, I would ask a question in response. Would you, do you think like, first of all, do you believe in these existing? And secondly, do you think that they're here with us possibly tonight, like helping this conversation? That's a very interesting point, the latter point. First of all, the the word belief is very tricky for me. And yeah, I don't I, use I, it I, much. me fail English, but you, I, I hope you know what I mean. Uh, uh, yes, I, I think I do, but it's very important to get away from that. I've always wondered why uh, UFOs are characterized as UFO believers. It's not yeah, a religion. Yeah, files poster, it, I want to believe, right. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to believe, I want to know. Yeah, gnosis. That's a very different thing. Um, I, it is my opinion that these uh, beings are ascended humans who have advanced to a point that they are capable of being no longer human, but who choose to remain uh, helpers to the human race. Call them angels if you want to. Call them messengers if you want to. Call them whatever you like. Uh, and the answer to your uh, the latter question is, I believe so. I think a lot of the synchronicity that we experience and a lot of the um, epiphanies that we, we have uh, are a result of the interaction between us and these beings. They're not so consistent or so pronounced that you can always put your finger on it. But... Uh, uh, when you feel like you're in the zone, so to speak, and things are falling into place, even if there are obstacles, because uh, the same level of maturity almost applies to the Black Lodge as well as to the Great White Brotherhood, to use the most traditional terms that I am loath to use, but they're more familiar than a lot of these other terms, I think. Um, uh, you will get both, but you know, um, you will know them by what they do. 
you know, if it's something that makes you wonder and quest and energizes you, it's uh, the Great White Brotherhood. If it's, or your own right in genium, uh, whichever, you know, or if it is, in fact, uh, something that makes you stumble or doubt or or become superstitious or join one of those organizations of ancient fools. The OAF, the Organization of Ancient <laughs> Fools, um, you are probably under the influence of the Black Lodge. And um, I, I, I don't base that on pure theory because pure theory is sort of like belief. It's um, belief used to mean mean fidelity. Um, it was Karen Armstrong, the, uh, the theologian, who pointed this out to me, and uh, I'm I, I think she's wrong about a lot of things, but she's right about that. Uh, belief used to mean if you do the do the work consistently, then you are be life, really meaning um, you have faith, original term, fides, Latin for fidelity. In fact, in masonry, there is a phrase at the end of one of the degrees that goes fidelity, fidelity, fidelity. And that's as close as I get to belief. I owe allegiance, subject to change, to those things that I think that are true, based on what I've experienced, what I've read, what I've uh, researched, field research, other people's research that I respect, etc. But it's never a belief with me. Um, I would be a, a fizzle if somebody came to me and say, do you believe in such and such? Because I would say no, to, um, because I don't believe in anything. But I do think certain things are true. And if it is my current opinion subject to change that something is true, then I adhere to that notion that that is true until uh, the preponderance of evidence shifts to something else. Often it does. Sometimes it doesn't. In science, it shifts all the time these days, especially once the Hubble went up, the universe became a much more fascinating and more mysterious place. And uh, because it was outside of the atmosphere and that changed everything. And uh, we undergo paradigm shifts all the time. I always tell people to read the great book on paradigm shifts uh, uh, because it's something that happens and you either roll with it or you get behind the times. You're talking about Thomas Kuhn, of course, right? Yes. That's the major, 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 major importance. Well, I think right. that's a really good place to draw to a close. It, it reminds me of how you end um, Secret Cipher of the, uh, excuse me, the Secret Rituals of the Men in Black by saying that we are the ones that we've been waiting for or something to that effect. So... That sounds so good. It must have been me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, thank you well, so much for yeah, being yeah. here with us tonight. Like, honestly, like this has been way, it's just, uh, it's like manna from heaven. It's, it's a refreshing oasis. And I very, I very much enjoyed it. And I hope we can do this again. 
Like, oh uh, yeah, I'd be delighted to, uh, possibly for a bit shorter yeah. period of time, yeah. like two hours maybe. But this is the longest I think I've ever done. You know, most programs they interrupt for commercials, whatever. Anyway, I've enjoyed it a lot, and I'm going to go watch TV and eat something. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alan. Like seriously, thank buy you. my books. I need the money. Uh, I need the, the groceries. Okay, uh, the God the never does the same thing twice, and the and the complete secret cipher of the euphonauts. Yes. You save money by buying it. Well, you, if you do it the right way. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Alan. Jake, you want to say goodnight? Uh, yeah, really. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'll be in touch with you for sure. Cause... Oh, yes. You you do need to give me a, uh, a link whenever you put this up so I can tell oh, my yeah. readers to because there's been a lot of interest shown it's uh so i think that this is going to be one for the uh one for the ages and i say that humbly like i i think we hit a grand slam tonight excellent i'm glad that we have i mean i just you know whatever is is and i'm uh, uh i never listen myself because it always sounds like i could have said you know such and such but i think we've We've really covered a lot of territory, and I hope that your listeners find it as interesting to listen to as it has been to go back and forth on it. So, well, Alan, have a great night, and thank you so much. Morning. More like a morning, but yeah, right. you too. Good morning. Yeah, we've crossed over in the morning territory now. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> good morning, Alan. Better be, better be. That's all, folks. Ciao. In the morning. Thank you so much for listening. Alan is awesome. <laughs> that's that's what I got to say right now. Um, I really appreciate what he brings to the table. And I like his attitude. And I find that he is a source of... Uh, he's untapped wisdom. That's where I'm just going to go with that. It's like, I don't want to give away the secret here. but <laughs> So um, I'm looking forward to um, plumbing some more depths and seeing from some different vistas. Because like, uh, this, is, this is pretty cool. I think that there's a lot of great things happening right now. Um, you know, it always was the best of times, worst of times kind of thing. But uh, from where I'm standing... There are a lot of uh, important things happening right now. I mean, it's from from as above, so below. Like the stars above, and the projects that people are getting into, people taking charge of their own businesses, um, making more efforts at their actual creative works. Things seem to be manifesting. Uh, maybe it's Uranus and Taurus. I don't. I don't know. But anyways, thank you so much for listening. Honestly, I appreciate everyone's time, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. There's more to come. Uh, different guests, different guest hosts, and uh, different guest topics. Bat time, bat channel, bat something. <laughs> mobile <laughs> anyways uh i guess uh, the chariots on my mind had a crazy chariot sink by the way the other day at a ufo thing but um it's a story for another time all right everyone thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you <laughs>